Hello, deserving listeners. We got an email from patron Paul asking us to talk about adult ADHD. He's a counselor in the UK, and he wanted me to talk about undiagnosed adult ADHD. He wants to hear about the effects on relationships, employment, the late diagnosis itself, and the subsequent acceptance, and then the reframing of their history, which is a very interesting question from patron Paul, counselor in the UK. He's had several encounters of late-diagnosed ADD patients with whom he has initially seen due to issues with home and work life. So he will see people who have issues and then later on discover, hmm, maybe they have been suffering from ADD or ADHD their entire life, and they've never been diagnosed and never been treated, and they have all sorts of complications around this because not only because of the of the condition, but also because of not being diagnosed and not treated. He wrote, I would be grateful if you could cover mechanisms employed to cope with or conceal inattentive behavior, covert narcissism, isolation, addiction, denial, and the effect on relationships. Patron Paul, counselor in the UK, is a very smart dude to ask about such things because adult ADHD concerns all these things and many, many other things. So today, that's what I want to talk about. I want to talk about the diagnosis of ADHD, which is really quite complicated and I think vastly misunderstood in the general public. Also want to talk about overdiagnosis. So there's both, uh, ADHD is very strange because there's both an overdiagnosis and an underdiagnosis, which I will get into. I'll, I'll talk about the prevalence, the causes, a little bit about the brain, and uh, I'll talk mostly about the effects that ADHD has on people's lives, what the research shows. How does ADHD affect people as adults? What kinds of things? Because ADHD is one of those conditions that has been researched in my field thousands of times. And so there's a lot of data and there's a lot of things to talk about. I'll also talk about treatment, medication, psychotherapy, coaching, systemic treatment, family therapy, this kind of thing. So I'll go into that as much as I can. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I am chair of the Couple and Family Therapy Program at Antioch University, Seattle, and I'm also a licensed marriage and family therapist. This episode is just for patrons of the podcast. Sorry to you non-patrons. If you want to hear this podcast and the tens of other podcasts, premium episodes, you must become a patron of the podcast first. It's not hard to do. You just go to patreon.com. All right. Welcome to the patron zone, people. We love you very, very much for becoming patrons. Spread the word if you could. We're hitting kind of a plateau right now, and so, which is fine if that's how things are going to be. But if we're going to take this to the next level, we got to make a serious push to get more patrons. But I don't know. We'll see what happens. Okay, so adult ADHD, or just in general ADHD, what does it look like? So first I'm just going to talk about the the effects or the, the signs or the symptoms of ADHD for adults and children in general. So let me talk about that. They will typically break up ADHD into, so it's Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, but I'm going to say ADHD, or sometimes I'll say ADD because it... In the old days, they would say ADD with hyperactivity. So anyway, 
Um, so there are three different uh, common presentations of ADHD. The first one is predominantly in- inattentive type. So these are ADHD people who are primarily in- inattentive. And then you have the second one, which is predominantly hyperactive slash impulsive type. So these types of ADHD people tend to present a lot of hyperactivity and impulsivity. And then the third type is a combined type. So they, they uh, have perhaps equal amounts of inattentive behavior and also hyperactivity and impulsivity. So let me talk about the first type first, the predominantly inattentive type. The, these, these people are easily distracted. Like when someone seems to not be listening to you after you say only a couple sentences. I say this one because it's main. I'm going to gear this as much toward adult ADHD as I can. You know, easily. It's obvious we come up with a million examples of children being inattentive in class or this kind of thing. But for adults, in my experience, adult ADHD is is often seen among social. Uh, peers. So if your spouse has ADHD, this inattentive type, or your friend has ADHD or your coworker, often what will happen is while you're talking, if you don't get to the point within two sentences, they will stop listening to you. And someone who doesn't have ADHD will have no problem listening to you talk for a long time, unless they don't want to. But for people with ADHD, if you don't get the information in within two sentences, they, you've lost them. I, I actually have a friend like this. I learned this decades ago that it, when I talked to him, if I didn't get it in, probably just in the first sentence, by the second sentence, he would. I could tell that he wasn't listening. And so uh, I learned to be very quick with my communication with him and just and only say one sentence at a time. So, which, you know, as a talker, you can imagine that would be tough for me. Okay, so so the predominantly inattentive type of ADHD, they're easily distracted. They have difficulty getting organized. They have difficulty finishing a task because, again, they get distracted. Like when someone has a million unfinished tasks, Perhaps they might have a lot of clutter in their house because in order to clean things up or put things away properly, you have to finish a task. You know, like you buy something at the store and on your way in the house, you grab the mail and then you walk in the house and you put the mail down on the table and then you go to uh, the kitchen and you you open up the thing you bought at the store and you leave the package out and then you you take say it's a candle and you say oh i want to put this candle in the bathroom oh but i need i need a little votive glass thing first okay i'll put the candle down here okay where's the votive candles where did i put that let me go to the garage open a box where, you know, what am I doing in the garage? Oh, what's over here? Let me see. Oh, what's on TV? And then, you know, three weeks go by and the mail is still on the table. The candle is still on the table and the the material to to house the, you know, the packaging for the candle is still on the table. And so that's what, you know, inattentive type ADHD adults can sometimes look. Not, not all of them, obviously, but, but some of them. And again, it's not that they are irresponsible or dirty or something. It's that they are so easily distracted. And one of the things I really want to point out is that 
all of us can become distracted. You know, all of us, if we sit through a lecture and we're bored, we'll start to daydream. Or all of us will be reading a book and about halfway down the page, we realize, oh, wait a second, I haven't really been reading this. I, I've, I've just been skimming it. All of us, when someone is telling us a story, will be distracted by a bird that flies by the window or something. So it, all of us can become inattentive and exhibit ADHD-like uh, symptoms. But the thing I really want to point out is that people with ADHD have an extreme version of this. And in all likelihood, it, although our science is pretty, our, is pretty bad at this point, and we just don't have the technology to, to measure such things, but there's, there's pretty strong evidence that people with ADHD have a brain disorder, that it's not just lack of discipline or their upbringing or something. Their brain is actually lacking a, 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 a typical pathway that allows them or directs them or whatever them to pay attention to things that are perhaps not exciting. You know, when you come home from, from work and you have the candle in the box and you have, wasn't that a, wasn't that a candle box? That was, that was a, that was a nineties rock band in Seattle, incidentally. Uh, yeah. So you have the candle in the box. Talk about inattentive. Okay. Um, and distractibility. So you have the candle in the box, you have the mail in your hand and you put it down. Well, none of that is very exciting. It's not as exciting as, as a movie on TV or a video game or someone screaming in your face or I don't know. There, there's, there's a lot more exciting, exciting things. And so when you have a particular brain condition that makes it hard to focus on things that aren't very exciting, then it uh, creates what we call ADHD. And so the thing I really want people to know if they aren't on board, of course, patron Paul is clearly understanding this, but you have to understand that it's not just normal distractibility. If you have adult ADHD or you know someone that does, or you treat people that do, then you know what it's like. It's, it's a pervasive, ongoing problem for these people, and they have to work really hard to overcome it. And some of them can't unless they have medication or treatment or this sort of thing. So for all of us that are not ADHD, when we become distracted, we can sort of redirect our brains. Oh, okay, I better pay attention. Or with a little bit of trickery, we can remind ourselves to pay attention to things. We could, for instance, with the mail, you know, we might say, okay, instead of putting the mail on the kitchen table, I will dedicate myself to going through the mail as soon as I walk in the door. This is incidentally what I do. As soon as I walk in the door, I deal with the mail. I, I, I go right to the kitchen counter. I open up all the mail and I, there's a, it always produces a ton of recycling. So I throw all the recycling out. And then I bring the bills or whatever to my office, and then I deal with that right away. If it's a bill, I pay it right there. Now, the reason why I do that is because 10, 20 years ago, I would bring in the mail, and I would put it in this little slot I had on my desk, and it would pile up. And sometimes I would, for, I would forget to even look at it, and then I would forget to pay a bill, or I would, you know, I'd forget something important. Or something would get kind of lost in the shuffle and thrown away or something. And so I learned that 
I better do it this other way in order to account for that. Well, for people of ADHD, there are things that they can do to somehow to, to, to improve things, but their, their brain is such that it makes it almost impossible for them to exert willpower over their lack of attention. So I just want to get that point across. Anyway, so getting back to inattentive type. Um, so again, easily distracted, can't uh, difficulty getting organized, difficulty finishing a task. You know, maybe they have a lot of incomplete work tasks. Like at work, if you you know, if someone with adult ADHD has a job where they have a lot of little tasks, well, unless they have an elaborate system to keep them on track with various different steps, then they will tend to not complete those tasks. Again, not because they're lazy, but just because their brain is such that it's hard for them to hold on to all the steps in the task to actually get it done. And that's something that you work with kids and adults on is if a task has five to 10 steps to it, they have to have some way of of uh, accounting for that fact or else they won't be able to finish it. You know, if, if you say, take this uh, box and put it in the garage to someone with adult ADHD, no problem. They have the box right in front of their face. They have one step, walk down the stairs, put it in the garage. If you say, I want you to clean the garage. Well, this involves perhaps tens of, you know, tens of steps or maybe even a hundred steps. You got to go down there. You have to assess what to clean. You have to, you know, get the cleaning stuff out. You got to you know, organize the boxes. You might have to go to Home Depot and the store and buy like shelves or, you know, there's so many different steps. And for them to hold all of that, that scheme in their brain from step one to a hundred it's it, their brain is such that it can't hold on to all that at once. And so they end up often becoming overwhelmed and just giving up say, I, I'm, I, or they even know, especially adults that they are not good at that sort of stuff. And they might've even labeled themselves as stupid or lazy, or I don't know, just not good with that sort of thing. And will just give up early because they just know their brain isn't going to help them in that instance. Okay. Inattentive type also uh, have difficulty attending to details, like when someone loses track of things or when someone has trouble following directions. Uh, The predominantly inattentive type of ADHD, these people also have difficulty following instructions or even conversations. Like I said before, they might seem to not be paying attention. They might even seem to not care about other people because a key part of showing that you care about someone is paying attention and remembering things about them. You know, when their birthday is, uh, when they come home and they start downloading about the day you, you stand there and you listen to them. Well, people with adult ADHD have difficulty with that again, not because they don't care, but because their brain is such that it's, it, it's really taxing to the brain to, to pay attention in that way. You know, think about that. Maybe you know. Say, say, you have a spouse that comes home and downloads for thirty seconds. He or she, or they, walk into the house and say, "I had the worst day at work. Oh my god! Listen to me. You know, my boss did this and this and this, and it takes thirty seconds." Well, for most of us, that's not hard to pay attention to. It's just thirty seconds. Well, now imagine every day 
your spouse comes home and downloads for 30 minutes or 60 minutes. Well, not that there's anything wrong with that, but imagine having to uh, spend the brain power to pay attention to that and not be distracted and not get bored. It'd be challenging, right? Well, for the adult ADHD person, their brain is such it, that for many of the people with adult ADHD, when someone walks in the door, 30 seconds to them, to their brain, is 30 minutes. It's, it's, it's physically taxing or whatever you want to call it. It's, a, it's difficult for their brain to, to, to do that for that long. And so what often happens is spouses of adult ADHD people will feel quite hurt and will feel like their spouse doesn't care. But that is actually not the case. They actually do care. It's just that their brain is different. People with inattentive type may seem careless or sloppy. They may forget to complete the details of daily routines. Typically, the sort of situations I see in my practice are uh, with children I see in this type, the inattentive type. I see boys who seem to be zoned out at school and at home and have difficulty following directions or get upset when people are upset with them. So when you're a boy with ADHD, you're often being yelled at. And so you feel hurt a lot. And so you might start acting out because you just feel like you're being picked on. Um, girls who with ADHD will talk a lot in class or can't seem to follow directions as well and might also feel quite hurt because they don't understand why they're being yelled at all the time. Uh, as an adult... Uh, a man might come to my office who is struggling with their their relationships, their marriages, because they're being labeled as irresponsible, and they don't seem to uh, have cultivated, caring, secure relationships with other, with other people. Their their work life might be uh, struggling. This sort of thing. Women. Uh, often will be distracted or quote-unquote frazzled. They'll often be apologizing. Adult ADHD women will often be apologizing for, for being tired or frazzled or, or just unable to, to put in energy to you know paying attention to people or getting things done. But I just want to say here is that adult ADHD and child ADHD, for that matter, is a very complex condition with many, many presentations. It's very difficult to, to describe a typical presentation of ADHD. You will find that when you talk about ADHD, a lot of people will come forward and say, oh my God, that, that's me, or oh my God, that's my kid, or oh my God, that's my spouse, or oh my God. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people will come forward. And then when you actually start hearing their stories, you will hear a lot of different stories. They don't typically fall into one category. And I think the reason, uh, one of the effects of, of that, of that is that, uh, it makes it hard to describe and therefore it makes it hard to spread the word about, you know, when it comes to depression, it's such a simple condition that we can describe very typical situations and be confident that, that when we describe this typical presentation, that a lot of people will say, oh, yeah, that's me or that's my friend. And they'll remember that presentation because it's quite simple. 
you know, someone who feels down a lot. They have trouble motivating themselves. They're irritable. They might sleep more or they might have trouble sleeping or they might have a change in appetite. But, you know, again, low self-esteem, um, have trouble having fun in life. You know, these are this. There's a very typical presentation of major depressive disorder, whereas when it comes to ADHD, it, it can look very different. Uh, from individual to individual. You, you can have two adult ADHD people describe their condition to the other person and the other person will say like, that's nothing like my ADHD. And so it's, it's, it's hard to describe. So I just want to make sure you understand that. Okay. So I, I've described the first type of ADHD, predominantly inattentive. And the second is hyperactive impulsive type. So for these people, they're very active they are they fidget a lot they talk a lot they have extreme difficulty sitting still they seem to be frequently moving their body or they they seem restless impatient they have trouble with impulsivity they'll say things impulsively or they'll they'll do things impulsively they might blurt out comments they might interrupt conversations this is actually a common feature of the hyperactive impulsive type. They may get into trouble by not thinking before they act. They are also more prone to accidents or injuries because again, the impulsivity that they're not thinking before acting and they get in more accidents and they, they injure themselves more. I've observed uh, children and adults of this type and the thing that I really want to point out is that, you know, me, for instance, I fidget a lot. I have trouble sitting still, but I am not hyperactive, impulsive type ADHD because of the people that I've seen who actually do have ADHD of this type, it they are a hundred times more fidgety and a hundred times uh, have more difficulty sitting still. You You will see them bouncing off the walls. They are, they, I'll, I'll never forget this one kid that I saw earlier in my career. And it was the first time that I, that I said, Oh, I get it because this, and this is part of the problem with the diagnosis is that when you say hyperactive, what kid isn't hyperactive, you know, all kids, that's what they want to do. I mean, whenever you see a comedian, um, impersonate a child, the first thing that they will do is they will, they will constantly fidget and move their arms. You know, if you, if you see a, a comedian make, making fun of a child, they, you know, they, they squirm and they experiment with a move and they, they like to kind of skip instead of just walk. And they like to jump up on things and jump down off things. And, and that's normal for kids to do. Right. And so, that's why a lot of people are like, oh, I think my kid's hyperactive because I don't like it when my kid jumps off of things. But that's just normal kid behavior. But when you see someone who actually has ADHD, hyperactive impulsive type, you will say, oh, I get it. This is the disorder. This is not normal kid hyperactive behavior. So the the time that I early in my career that I, I was like, Oh, I get it. I was doing an in, in-home therapy and I walked in the house and the kid, the parents came to the door and they're like, okay, how are you doing? And the kid was climbing on, they lived in a kind of a modern Richie rich house, you know, with lots of wood 
accoutrement and the, the kid was climbing on this stuff that was not meant to be climbed. And then he was going into his toy box and he was throwing toys around. And then the parents were trying to get him to, you know, organize himself and he was not complying. And then he would run upstairs and he'd run downstairs and he was miserable actually, because it wasn't, it's not just hyperactivity. It's not just like you have a happy kid who is just enjoying life. ADHD, inattentive, hyperactive type. The kids aren't, they're not necessarily having fun with their hyperactivity. The times that I've seen it, particularly in the severe cases, the kids aren't having fun. They're not like, yay, I'm hyperactive. Woo, let's do stuff. You know, it seems like their brain is, is glitching and they can't focus and their body just needs to move because almost out of anxiety, but it's not anxiety. And the, the thinking is, and I'll get more into this later, is that their brain, the, the, the amount of signal, the electricity in the brain is under, is under voltage, so to speak. That's a bad way of putting it, but it's not firing enough. There's not enough signal that's happening in the brain. And the brain is essentially trying to stimulate itself to bring it to normalcy. And so because the child is not, the brain is, is essentially not quite operating at its, at the, at a comfortable level, the child is trying to jump around the room to stimulate their brain, to bring it to normalcy. And that's why stimulants work so well. It's because when you bring them up just, you know, um, artificially up to that normal electricity level in the brain, they don't need to be hyperactive anymore to bring that level up or, you know, through their behavior. And so, so anyway, that I remember when I saw that, I said, Oh, I get it. And the kid was miserable and was really dragging the family down as you can imagine. And it was then I realized, Oh, this is a disorder. This is not just regular kid uh, jumping around. This, this is actually quite sad. And I feel really quite bad for this kid and the family. So that's just something to understand. Also, adults with this type will often, uh, early in life, being a teenager, they will realize that drugs, uh, you know, illicit drugs, will actually help them with their condition. Marijuana, heroin, meth, these sorts of things. They will take it and it will actually reduce their symptoms. And they will obviously be intoxicated, which doesn't help, but overall they're better off because their hyperactivity is managed better. And so the adults that I would see with this type will be very fidgety, but they'll also be ad- active addicts as well. And so now with some people, it's hard to delineate because, you know, if they've been an addict since they were a teenager, is the hyperactivity and ADHD a, a function of their addiction or not? Hard to tell. But for a lot of people with ADHD, they will turn to substances as a way of trying to manage their symptoms. It's, it's a very common thing. So again, we had the first type, which is the inattentive type. Again, we, those people are easily distracted. They're not hyperactive is the thing. They are, you know, they have trouble following through with things. They get in trouble a lot for being irresponsible, but they're not bouncing off the walls. 
then you have the second type, which is the inattentive or the hyperactive impulsive type. These people are bouncing off the walls. They're impulsive with their behavior. They're, they're hyper. And then you have the third type, which is combined type. So it's some combination of the two other types. Okay, so now let's go to the DSM-5. The DSM-5 identifies the following core symptoms of ADHD. You have inattention and distractibility. You also have hyperactivity and you have impulsivity, as I talked about before. Now, some have argued that in the DSM-5, the, the following should be added. That it's not is emotional dysregulation. There's a, a newer-ish movement that uh, is trying to make emotional dysregulation a central feature of ADHD. And, uh, you know, I, I'm not sure exactly why maybe they're just saying that it's being ignored or maybe they're even hypothesizing that that might even be a major, uh, you know, core way of understanding ADHD is, is that people have trouble managing their emotions, but I don't know. Okay. DSM five requires, uh, the diagnosis requires that ADHD and adults begin in childhood and the symptoms must have been present before the age of 12. DSM-4, the previous edition, required an onset prior to age 7. So it's, it's made it easier for people to qualify. But here's the thing. One cannot have adult ADHD without, without first having childhood ADHD. So this presents kind of a complication in the DSM because say you have an adult, as far as I understand it, who well, I, I should actually say something. I should have said this long ago. ADHD is not my specialty. I've certainly treated it before, but there are people in my field. I actually supervise someone that works at us as a, at an ADHD specialist center. And because it's such a complicated thing, it's such a common thing, it's such a misunderstood thing, it's such a common reason for children to have trouble in school and this kind of stuff. It it's it's a highly specialized area in my field. Like I said about depression, it's not a highly specialized area. Most therapists understand depression and understand how to treat it. ADHD is, is actually quite complicated. It's, it's like eating disorders. You can't just say, ah, I think I'll start treating eating disorders now. It's actually really quite a complex thing, and, and ADHD is similar to that. And I'm actually not one of those super experts. I, I know stuff about it, as I'm, you know, talking about here. But there, there's, there's nuances. I'm guessing that I am not going to be presenting. So if uh, if you're looking for definitive training on ADHD and adult ADHD, I, I am I am not the tree to bark up. So. Um, so anyway, so from what I understand from the DSM, if you're an adult and you've never been diagnosed with ADHD or you don't remember having signs of it as a child, then according to DSM-5, you don't qualify for the diagnosis, which seems really silly to me because what if you don't remember or, you know, what if you just didn't seem to exhibit the symptoms or what if you went to a school system that allowed for ADHD without pathologizing it. And then as an adult, 
you, you enter, say you become an engineer and you need to pay attention a lot. And suddenly you start seeing your, how your symptoms start manifesting in these ways that harm you. It just seems possible that you could have adult ADHD without noticing it or even having it as a child. I mean, it also seems possible that your brain could change and you could actually develop ADHD as an adult. I don't know, but that's, I think, a bit of a controversy if I'm not mistaken. In the DSM-5, they have a number of differential diagnoses, including, including uh, meaning that uh, when you see ADHD in people, you want to first rule out these other diagnoses, these other conditions, because these other conditions can actually uh, produce symptoms that look like ADHD, when in fact a more accurate conceptualization of the person is to apply one of these other labels. So, and there's a lot of other labels, which is why ADHD is so misunderstood because there's so many other things that produce ADHD-like symptoms, such as learning disabilities, uh, oppositional defiant disorder, bipolar, depression, anxiety, conduct disorder, sleep problems, family conflict, parenting deficits, Tourette's syndrome, substance abuse, intermittent explosive disorder, stereotypic movement disorder, autism spectrum disorders, and personality disorders. This is probably, I don't know, 75% of the DSM-5. All of these conditions can create symptoms that look like ADHD. And this is part of the thing I want to talk about regarding overdiagnosis. When you have a child that has a sleep problem, for instance, and they they just, for whatever reason, are just having trouble falling asleep, whether it's a, a medical condition or they have anxiety about sleep or their house is noisy or they have a bunch of pets that bother them all night long or whatever. There's a lot of reasons why someone would have a sleep problem. Well, when they go to school the next day, they are going to exhibit ADHD-like symptoms. They're going to be easily distracted. They're going to have trouble staying on task. They might even be hyperactive. But they don't have ADHD. What they have is a sleep problem. And the sleep problem is resulting in symptoms that look like ADHD. This is something that I often will tell my students. Because ADHD in our society, for whatever reason, when someone, when you have a kid, particularly children, who has trouble paying attention to things, the first thing that they will say is, oh, they have ADHD. They won't say, oh, maybe they have a sleep problem. Oh, maybe they have anxiety. Oh, maybe they have bipolar. Oh, maybe they have a learning disability. ADHD, for whatever reason, is the first thing that people will go to. It's a, I don't know why, or, you know, it's a cultural thing that I think began in the 90s, maybe. It's something that uh, teachers in particular, I think, and parents too, will turn to rather quickly. So other things, family conflict, when you have conflict in the family or death in the family or something along, along those lines, you will have a kid who might be distracted or an adult for that matter, who might exhibit distractibility. But when a teacher sees a distractibility in a child, they might not feel comfortable saying, so are you guys fighting at home? Whereas it's much easier to say, I think you need to put your kid on Ritalin. And incidentally, 
when you put any child on Ritalin, they will perform better. I, you know, not maybe every child, but, but a majority of kids will do better whether they have ADHD or not. And so it's a, it's a easy fix for many people seemingly in their mind. And they will often overlook the real problem, which is not a disorder of the brain. And that's what I tell my students is you have to understand that ADHD, the, the, the experts that I read and listen to will say that you really have to see ADHD as a executive functioning brain disorder. It is not just a set of symptoms. It is something wrong with the brain that, you know, seems to be in the executive functioning area, the, the frontal lobe, and it is not something else. So you, so if, if, if it doesn't seem to be a disorder of the brain, then you have to start looking in other areas like anxiety. If you, this is something I have a serious bone to pick with our society. When you have a kid who is, who is being distractible in class and being hyperactive and not complying and having trouble in school, for whatever reason, they will jump to ADHD and clinicians too, and won't assess for anxiety. I believe, if I remember right, anxiety is more prevalent than ADHD. I think depression is more prevalent than ADHD too in kids. Not quite sure. Uh, I have my notes on that in a second. But anyway, anxiety is highly prevalent in children. I'll just say that, and so is depression. And when children are distracted or not doing well, for whatever reason, clinicians and teachers and parents alike have trouble imagining that the kid is anxious, that the kid has an anxiety disorder or the kid has a depressive disorder. But imagining the kid has ADHD seems so much more easier. I think it's because ADHD doesn't have the negative association that anxiety or depression or family conflict or parenting deficits. It, it, it's so much, it's such a faster treatment. It's like, okay, get a pill, but say it's parenting problems. Well, that is a tough thing to treat. It takes a long time and the parents might not think that there's something wrong with them and something wrong with their parenting. And so you're going to instantly become in conflict with the parents as a teacher. If you suggest that, you know, you say, so say you have a teacher that's looking at a kid and the kid's having trouble, the, if the teacher, you know, brings the parents into the school and says, you know what, your, your child's uh, struggling in school, and I, I often find that this is due to bad parenting. What do you think about that? You know, that's going to be a tough conversation, but one that will actually produce the ADHD-like symptoms. So, Again, long list, learning disabilities, oppositional defiant, bipolar, depression, anxiety, conduct disorders, sleep problems, family conflict, parenting deficits, Tourette's syndrome, substance abuse, intermittent explosive disorder, stereo, stereotypic movement disorder, autism spectrum, and personality disorders. Okay, so whenever we see ADHD, we have to also look in all those areas as possibilities for the ADHD symptoms. Also... Uh, ADHD is highly comorbid, meaning it often is accompanied by mood disorders, anxiety disorders, substance abuse disorders, sleep disorders, personality disorders, and eating disorders. So these aren't differentials. These are comorbidities, and I won't go into details on that. I won't bore you. Okay. So let's talk about overdiagnosis. 
Basically, we have a problem with overdiagnosing of ADHD because many clinicians are not trained. We have a lot of not only psychotherapists, psychologists, but also physicians and nurses who are just not trained sufficiently on how to diagnose in general and also how to diagnose ADHD. Also, you get pr- you get pressure from parents and schools and physicians to diagnose kids with ADHD. They seem to have an agenda. I will frequently get referrals or have in the past. I don't treat kids so much anymore, but I would get referrals all the time that, that would say, I want you to evaluate this kid for ADHD. Instead of saying, we have a problem with this kid at school or at home, and we'd like you to figure out what it is. That's not what they say. What they say is, I want you to evaluate this kid for ADHD. And often what that means is, I think this kid has ADHD, and you as a clinician have the power to diagnose this, and I want that diagnosis. I need that diagnosis for some reason. Also, People just want an answer oftentimes. When you have a kid who is struggling at home in school or whatever, or an adult that's struggling, people want an answer. They want that label often. Not always, but a lot of people feel very uncomfortable without having a label. They're experiencing, you know, say you have a stomach ache and it lasts for a month and you go to doctors and they're just like, you know what, we just don't know what this is. If you've ever been through something like that, you know that it's very disconcerting. It's very uncomfortable. But as soon as someone says, oh, it, it's this, we figured it out 100%, this is what it is. Even if it's a bad condition, there's a lot of relief that people will feel because they finally feel as though there's a name, there's a there's a justification, there's a val- it's, it's sort of validating. It's like this condition that you have is something that other people have had, and we have a treatment for it. And so it's very uncomfortable not to have that label. So a lot of people are just saying, I need this ADHD diagnosis because I want that label. People also want an answer other than the things I was talking about before, like there's something wrong with your family or there's something wrong with your parenting. So again, there's a lot of pressure, as I was saying before, to... Uh, in the system, you know, in the school system, in the family system to get this label on there so that they can uh, stop wondering, is this my parenting? Is this the grief this child is going through because of the lo- of the divorce or whatever? Also, there's a lot of overdiagnosing in general in my field because we as a field, we want to help people. We want to be able to help people. And when people come in for help and they they say, you know, please figure this out, there's a compulsion to provide an answer. And there's also a a lot of disadvantages to saying as a clinician, you know what, I've assessed you for a couple hours and I don't know what the answer is. I, I can't tell what it is you have. There's a lot of overdiagnosing, I think, because clinicians are essentially too insecure to say, I don't know, or I don't know enough about this condition. The DSM, if you've ever seen it, is a huge book. It's, I don't know how many pages, seven, 800 pages, and it's dense, and there's a lot of conditions in there. And if you're not experienced as a diagnostician, uh, particularly in that in that chapter in, the, in that book, then 
it's going to be hard for you to, to really know what you're seeing or what you're looking for. And so there's a lot of overdiagnosing because they want that. Also, there's a need in our field to diagnose in order to get funding. If you want insurance of any sort to pay for the treatment, there must be a medically necessary diagnosis. And so say, you know, a kid comes in and the only problem that they seem to have is they're struggling with, with grades and, and they're, they're not paying attention in class. Well, if the clinician says, you know what, ADHD, it's overdiagnosed. And this kid doesn't really fit the criteria. He or she is just barely has a couple of the symptoms, but, but nothing, it's not severe enough. And you know what, this kid doesn't fit any other criteria for any other diagnosis. So I'm going to apply the label of no diagnosis. Well, from that point forward, insurance will not pay for it. The child cannot go to therapy anymore unless the parents pay out of their own pocket, which can be upwards of a hundred plus dollars per session. And most people can't afford that. And so you need to provide a diagnosis just to establish treatment. And, and so again, there's a lot of motivation, a lot of motivated reasoning going on and overdiagnosing is an effect of that. Also, ADHD is overdiagnosed because of the following factors. It's a self-report um, diagnosis, meaning that there's no biomarkers. When you have, I don't know, low testosterone or something, or you have a uh, hypoglycemia, <laughs> I'm not a physician, so, or di- let's say you have diabetes. Well, if you have diabetes, there are biomarkers. They, I'm guessing they take your blood and they sample it and they say, yep, uh, you have, you have, uh, you have diabetes. Well, when it comes to ADHD, along with many other diagnoses in the DSM-5, there's, there's no biomarker. There's no biological sign of the disorder. And so us as diagnosticians can't mathematically measure something in a lab, we have to ask the patient to describe and people around the patient to describe behaviors, what they see. And we all know that bias and, you know, again, motivated reasoning will, will affect the way in which we describe ourselves and other people. Also, the criteria for ADHD is very imprecise. It doesn't say, and for a good reason, it doesn't say you must exhibit 10 hyperactive behaviors in the span of one week. It doesn't say anything like that for good reason, because that would be a ridiculous criteria criterion. So it, it has a very squishy nature to it as a lot of diagnoses in DSM five. And therefore when you're on the fence and again, someone's pressuring you to apply the label you're like, well, okay, it fits it, you know, this kid fits it enough or this adult fits it enough, fine, I'll apply the label of ADHD. Whereas with diabetes, I'm guessing, it's very difficult to to overdiagnose that because there are definitive uh, biological markers that have definitive ranges that you fall within that need to be seen in order to apply the label. So that's just something to understand. And if you're a clinician 
I'm hoping you understand that about the nature of psychological diagnosing, because uh, a lot of people in my field will talk about diagnosing as if it were as definitive as many medical diagnoses. It is not, and it, it needs to be understood within that context. I know people that will say things like, you know, this person definitely has a blank personality disorder. And when you say something like, well, you know, it's kind of debatable because blah, blah, they'll say, no, 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 no. I've assessed them. They definitely have it. And it's that's a very funny thing to say in my book. And I'm, I'm probably guilty of it at times, too. You know, we become attached to our own thoughts, right? But when you have such squishy science, then you always have to say, well, you know, they... They fit the criteria, but someone else looking at it might see it differently. I don't know, but that's how I'm seeing it. So to me, that's a, that's a responsible clinician. Now, the effects of overdiagnosing can lead to a number of, of difficult things. So it's not, just, it's not just an intellectual thing like, oh, you're not being accurate. Um, overdiagnosis can lead to a number of, of, of very difficult things. For instance... It can lead to labeling someone destructively. When you label someone with ADHD, or any other diagnosis for that matter, it carries with it meanings and stigma that can negatively impact people. It can positively impact people, but we need to be careful about that. So whenever we're applying a diagnosis, if we're on the fence about it, we have to think, hmm, you know, what kind of stigma or negative consequence is going to happen to this person if I apply this label to this person? Overdiagnosing can also lead to lowered expectations in a destructive way. If a kid is or an adult is labeled with ADHD erroneously, they themselves and others around them might stop expecting that person to perform uh, to their fullest ability and therefore they suffer because of that. Overdiagnosing leads to improper medication, which can lead to side effects that aren't necessary. It can lead to unnecessary therapies. It can lead to inflated healthcare costs. Every every year, our healthcare costs go up and up. And uh, although mental health is a very very small percentage of that healthcare cost, part of that we can attribute to overdiagnosing. And perhaps the most important thing that overdiagnosing with ADHD does is that it causes us to ignore the real problem. And I see this all the time in, in my field. A lot of my supervisees are treating kids that have real problems, such as family conflict, such as grief, such as a parent who is an addict or an alcoholic such as sleep problems or anxiety or depression. And what ADHD will do once they get that diagnosis is it will garner all the attention and allow the family system to continue to deny the, the real problem. And, and so this is the, the real tragedy of overdiagnosing, particularly with ADHD, because it denies families the focus that they really need to be focusing on and uh, and this is a problem. Now, for some people, uh, they can manage this. Some clinicians and families can manage this. When you say, 
Well, yeah, ADHD. And we also need to look at the family conflict. or And we really need to look at the parenting. And we really need to look at how this family is transitioning from uh, uh, into divorce. So uh, just another thing to think about. Okay. So anecdotally, what I will say is I have heard the following phrase so many times, and every time, every additional time I hear it, I get more and more aggravated. And that phrase is, I feel like this kid has ADHD. Now, this is, this is, that's the statement. I feel like this kid has ADHD or some permutation of that statement. Now, it's not that, uh, this statement, if it's said in the right context, is fine. But what I hear supervisees saying and, and other experienced clinicians saying is, is they'll, they'll sit down with a family or a kid, you know, for an hour intake and they'll fill out the paperwork and they'll ask them questions and they'll interact for a bit. And then at the end of the session, they'll just say, yep, ADHD. And when I ask them, you know, why they're diagnosing this, this person with ADHD, they'll say, ah, I just feel like it's ADHD. It just feels like ADHD to me. And I, and I, <laughs> the thing is, is diagnosing is not a feeling. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a process in which you make observations of, of behavioral data. You document that, and then you look at criteria in the DSM and you look at which criteria are endorsed properly. So, so this is something I see a lot. And, and again, this is, this is my field. I just have to, I'm embarrassed if you're not in my field. If you are in my field, you'll, you'll know, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. If you're not in my field, you'll say, really? I thought clinicians went to school for years and years about this sort of stuff. Well, the, the fact of the matter is, is that training as a therapist, very little of it actually entails diagnosing. It's a, it's a complicated area, you know, diagnosing, but the training is, is, is often only one or two quarters. You only take one or two classes on how to diagnose. And frankly, that's not enough time. Di- diagnosing is, a, is an extremely complex thing. And even if you're only focusing on the typical, you know, the typical diagnoses. And so we have a lot of un, not, you know, inadequately trained clinicians walking out there. And we also see physicians doing this, honestly. Because physicians can diagnose people with ADHD, and they might have never taken a class on psychopathology. And so, um, so there's a lot of this stuff like, yeah, I feel like it's ADHD. It feels like ADHD to me. <laughs> That's a ridiculous statement. Some, you know, something doesn't feel. Now, you could get a vibe about something. You know, you could say, oh, you know, it, it feels like ADHD to me, which will prompt me to actually assess properly whether or not ADHD is there. Now, let me explain how I and other experts in this area will uh, apply the label of ADHD. So just to contrast this, again, with depression, most clinicians, even experts, will say you can diagnose depression pretty quickly. It is a very common presentation. There's only a few common presentations, and it's pretty easy to detect. And there's not a lot of differentials to consider. There are some, but it's not hard to rule them out uh, quickly. But with ADHD, 
you, in my opinion, can only apply the label of ADHD properly after hours of evaluation and observation of the client and after you gather a bunch of data from parents and teachers, spouses, other people. You can't just talk to the patient. You have to talk to other people as well. And it's only after you spend hours talking to the patient, observing the patient, complete tasks, uh, administering assessments, talking to collateral contacts. It's only after all that time that you can be confident in an ADHD diagnosis. Because, again, as I said earlier, there's so many other reasons why an adult or child will be distractible or hyperactive. There's just so many other reasons. PTSD, I didn't mention. That's another possible reason. So when I have applied the label of ADHD or even ruled it out, I, I'll just tell you about one case I worked on not too long ago. And I sat down with the kid. We talked for an hour. I sat down with the family. We talked for an hour, not just about ADHD, but about their, their whole life. And then I sat down with the kid and I administered a number of tests. And this, this takes a long time, especially if the kid is distractible. It's hard to get them to pay enough attention to these tests. They have to, they have to put pen to paper and actually answer questions and they have to respond to a bunch of things. And then I have to send a bunch of questionnaires to all the teachers. The kid was in middle school, had six teachers at school. And so I had to have them all, or at least a, a number of them, fill out these, these questionnaires. I have to give these questionnaires to the parents. Then I have to gather all these data, enter them into a computer, uh, match them up against norms, and start piecing together uh, a picture here uh, from the interviews, from the quantitative data, uh, from the history of the family, and uh, what I my opinion was in the end, even though the kid had all the classic symptoms of ADHD, what I discovered was there was inconsistency between different classes and the home environment regarding his distractibility and his hyperactivity. When you have ADHD, classic ADHD, you will present similar levels of symptoms across different venues. Not always, not always, but, but that's, that's one of the things you're looking for. Are they distractible at home? Are they distractible at school? Are they distractible in all, all the classes? Uh, you know, that's what you're looking for. And this kid didn't seem to exhibit that there were, you know, significantly different reports from different people. But the kicker was that the family, the parents, used to be drug addicts and had trouble with the law uh, because of that and had been uh, uh, imprisoned and had, had fights with police officers in the home. And there was a, you know, a sort of, up and down history of that throughout the child's life. And only recently, because the parents had, you know, uh, gone through recovery and become sober and had dedicated themselves to their family and themselves in sobriety, only recently the family had become stable looking. And so once I got all that history, 
and really started piecing together the quant- the quantitative data, it it seemed like a issue of history and of a family systems issue and of a trauma issue rather than something wrong with this child's frontal lobe. So that's what I said in my report. Now, some people were very upset about this because they were looking for an ADHD diagnosis. And so I had to uh, uh, provide this report with the knowledge that many people are not going to be happy with this. Now, as a clinician, I could have taken the easy road and just said, yeah, you know, I'll, I'll, there, it, he meets enough of the criteria. I can justify this. I'll, I'll apply it. And I'll mention that the child's history of trauma is something to focus on as well. But I couldn't do that with the way that I see families and the way that I see ADHD and the way that I see this sort of thing. So that to me is now... If I had seen uh, a different presentation in the data and in interviews, he had a different history, I, w- I easily could have applied the label of ADHD or uh, an executive function disorder. Uh, so it can go either way. But as you can see with this, with that case that I just presented, it'd be very easy for someone, if they didn't have the time to do all that stuff and didn't know that that stuff is really necessary that you just say, oh, yeah, ADHD, he, you know, he fits enough of the criteria, moving on. Or a physician is like, yeah, you know, let's give him Ritalin. It's fine. Couldn't hurt, you know. And and all the while, missing the, the true reason for this child's distractibility being the, the family uh, upheavals and trauma that, I mean, he witnessed his families being carted off by police, his parents being carted off by police officers, you know, the police bust into the house, grab the parents, you know, slam them to the ground, cuff them, drag them into the car. And meanwhile, he's, he has no idea what's happening. He was, you know, quite young at the time. And he's, you know, obviously upset. Uh, his parents are saying, you know, nasty things to the police officers. Uh, there's, you know, there's just all, and, and not only that, but when you have heavy addicts as parents, they tend to neglect their kids and they tend to have some shady friends come over. And so these are all experiences that this kid went through that are much more likely culprits to the distractibility you're seeing. And when we uh, deny the ADHD diagnosis and emphasize the, the trauma uh, focus, then us as clinicians and as a family system, we are galvanized perhaps on the real issue rather than being distracted by this ADHD thing. So uh, to me, it's irresponsible to overdiagnose. Now, so that's overdiagnosing. Underdiagnosing is particularly bad among adults. For instance, one study found that 92% of adults diagnosed with ADHD after the age of 18 said that they wish they had been diagnosed and treated as children. So I just want to repeat that. So when they found adults that fit criteria for ADHD and, you know, been assessed well, and there's like, yep, you, you have a frontal lobe disorder, you have ADHD as an adult, and they asked them, 
were you diagnosed as a child with ADHD? 92%, nearly all of them said, no, I was never diagnosed with this as a child. And boy, I wish I had been because it really would have helped me back then. I, because at the time, I just thought I was stupid or a bad kid. But I wasn't. I just had this condition and I just needed some coping skills or a medication and I would have been fine. So there's a lot of under-diagnosing as well. Okay, so let's, let's go into the prevalence. How often does this show up in the population? ADHD is one of the most common psychiatric disorders in the United States and perhaps around the world. Child ADHD, the prevalence is between, you know, studies find different things, but it's between 6% and 9% of children in the United States will meet the criteria of ADHD at some point. Now, worldwide, it seems lower than that at 4%. Whenever they study this, they're, you know, they'll always, or at least the responsible researchers will say, you know, it's hard to compare cult between cultures, between countries because of language differences and just the way that children are treated differently. But it seems as though North America, Canada, United States, there's the the highest rate of ADHD in the world is in North America. It seems less prevalent in Europe and in other places. And in developing countries, as they call them, I don't know if I'm so keen with that label, but in what they call developing countries, it's the it's it's extremely rare for a child in a developing country to be given the label of ADHD. So this difference might be due to genetics, might you know, might be due to actually, you know, racial genetic differences. But in in my estimation, it's probably due to different diagnosing practices. It's probably also due to different demands on children. Children in the United States are uh, treated, you know, particularly and therefore are uh, given labels like ADHD, perhaps uh, much more likely to be given that. As I said before, the overdiagnosing of children is, is, is big. In other cultures, I'm guessing they have their own problems with diagnosing, and it, but it just doesn't happen to be overdiagnosing of ADHD. There's also different parenting practices in these other countries, and uh, that likely will result in different behaviors in children and therefore uh, different labels being applied. There's different diets across the world. In the United States and in other countries, we know that our diet it, for, and for children in particular is really quite poor you know, feeding kids a bunch of junk and that this also very likely has an effect on things. So, but anyway, 6, 6% to 9% of children in the United States will meet criteria for ADHD at some point and worldwide it seems to be 4%. So, you know, it's a lot of kids, right? Even if 4%, that's a, that's a lot of kids, you know, almost one in 20 kids. So now, Regarding gender, 80% of those who have ADHD are identified as male. So the vast majority of people who are 
labeled ADHD are boys or men. Now, let's talk about adult ADHD. What's the prevalence of adult ADHD? In the United States, it's lower than child, but still quite high at a rate of 4%. So 4% of adults will meet criteria of ADHD at some point in the United States. That's a lot of people, a lot of people. It used to be considered very rare. They used to think of ADHD as only a, a, a diagnosis for children. It wasn't until recently that they started realizing that adult ADHD is is really quite prevalent and it's just been ignored or misunderstood or something. So the new thinking is, is that many of those with childhood ADHD will continue to have symptoms later in life and uh, that we need to pay attention to that. We need to raise awareness of that. Again, lots of studies, lots of research in ADHD and adult ADHD. And so there's a wide range that different studies have found, but 30 to 80%, 30% to 80% of individuals diagnosed with ADHD during childhood seem to retain the diagnosis in adulthood. So that's a pretty wide range of people. But, you know, a rough estimate, you could say about half. So about half of those with childhood ADHD will continue to have ADHD as adults. So, you know, it's something we need to pay attention to. I'm guessing some of you listeners have never even heard of adult ADHD. If I were to say to you, this person has ADHD, you would assume that it would be a child. But, but you know, a good percentage of those with ADHD are adults. So we need to start raising awareness of adult ADHD, just like patron Paul is trying to do by asking this question. Now, usually it's not the hyperactivity that persists into adulthood. Usually it's just the inattentive symptoms that persist into adulthood. So typically if you are ADHD as a child, as an adult, you'll just be the inattentive type. If you're inattentive as a kid, then it's very consistent. But if you're hyperactive as a kid, impulsive as a kid, you might uh, morph, the ADHD might morph as you get older into more inattentive type rather than hyperactive and impulsive. And only, only 10% or between 10% and 25% of adults with ADHD are actually diagnosed and adequately treated. So very few people with adult ADHD actually get diagnosed and adequately treated. So here we have uh, a problem. So, you know, I, I hope the overall message you get is that ADHD is overdiagnosed in children and it's also underdiagnosed in children and it's particularly underdiagnosed for adults. So we have a lot of kids walking around with the label of ADHD who actually are suffering from something else or they're suffering from nothing. And there's plenty of kids with ADHD that are not given the label and not treated. And a lot of adults with ADHD with the actual condition and they're not being diagnosed and not treated. Now, there's lots of possible reasons for that. If I was to speculate, I would say that it's a lack of awareness in our society. You know, if some if the, if you have an adult that's having a lot of problems with inattention, 
my guess is most people don't go, oh, I wonder if I have ADHD. You know, most people would uh, turn to other explanations. Also, uh, there's a lack of awareness in the medical field and in my field, frankly. When you have an adult that comes in with lots of complaints, I wonder how many clinicians in my field would actually assess for adult ADHD. Now, I do know some clinicians that are really hell-bent on raising awareness of ADHD, and they will absolutely assess for ADHD with perhaps every client that they see. But uh, anecdotally, most clinicians in my field are, are not that sort of person, and so how many of them will overlook ADHD uh, without even trying to assess for it? For instance, in, in one recent survey... It was found that despite seeing a healthcare professional in the past year, 40% of the patients who met the criteria for adult ADHD had not been diagnosed, and only 10% of these adult ADHD patients had received any treatment for the disorder at all. So again, this, this one, even though, you know, you, you could say, well, the reason why they're not being di diagnosed is because they're not, you know, going to uh, a professional. Well, even they, they only for this, the participants of this study were people who had seen a healthcare professional in the last year, and 40% of those who met the criteria for adult ADHD had not been diagnosed. And 10% of those uh, were um, being treated. So for the vast majority of people, they're just, they're not being diagnosed, they're not being treated. That's the main point. Okay. So what are the causes? What's, what's the etiology? Well, now, as I said before, our science is really quite poor at this point. We don't have the technology or the resolution on the brain to understand uh, all the various different psychological things. We're starting to hone in on stuff, but it's pretty slow going, I'm just going to tell you. I mean, we're looking at really broad things, you know. Uh, fMRI scans are, are very rudimentary. A hundred years from now, we're going to have measuring tools that will make what we're doing now look like the dark ages. And, and so, at least that's my guess, my hope anyway. And so right now, it's just hard to tell. And so whenever you're, you have something like that, and you also have something as complex as ADHD, especially when it seems like, is it normal? Is it, is it abnormal? You know, um, it's hard to it's hard to study and it's hard to figure it out. So, uh, but of the things uh, and there's but there's been many studies looking at lots of different uh, causes, whether it be looking at the brain or looking at history or you know biological markers of other sorts. You know they've really looked at it from a lot of different angles, and it seems as though there are multiple causes of ADHD. That there's not just one cause for the condition. So it, it it might even be, you know, 100 years from now, once we really understand the brain better, ADHD might be broken up into several different disorders. You know, we might actually be looking at 5, 10, 50 different disorders, and we're all, and we're, and we're labeling all 50 of them as ADHD. When you don't understand 50 different things, and they all sort of look alike, then you kind of clump them all together. It's a similar thing with IBS or um, irritable bowel syndrome. The, th the thinking is, is that since we just don't really understand what's happening, 
and there seem to be multiple different treatments that, you know, for one person, this treatment works. And for this person, this treatment works. And for this person, nothing works. They think, well, maybe we're looking at 50 different disorders and we're just calling them the same thing. You know, for instance, this, you know, I'm not a medical professional, so maybe this is not true, but the way I see it is before we understood, uh, you know, the flu and other kinds of colds, we probably called them all the same thing, right? We'd say, oh, you have a cold or you have, you have, you know, you're sick. Well, we now know that there are multiple different bacteria and viruses or viri that will cause cold or flu or whatever we want to call it. And each one of those, um, you know, uh, agents uh, are, are different, are distinct from each other. And bacteria are quite different from uh, viruses or viri. And so we, in the past, we, we lumped them all together. But now we understand that they're different. For instance, with a virus, again, I'm not a physician, so I'm, I'm only sort of sure about this. You don't prescribe an antibiotic, whereas when you have a bacteria infection that is causing the flu or cold-like symptoms, then you take you can take an antibiotic maybe if, if you need to. And so uh, in the future, the thinking is, is that we'll understand this better and we'll say, you know what, ADHD is multiple things and therefore needs to be treated specific to that type of ADHD. You know, maybe in the future we'll have ADHD and then we'll have, you know, 10 other different diagnoses in the DSM-5 that will just, that will uh, describe things that we're, call, that we're calling one big thing of ADHD right now. Anyway. Okay. So, um, the other thing is, is that they found that ADHD is highly heritable. It's highly genetic. For instance, 50% of children, according to many studies, about 50% of children with ADHD have at least one parent with ADHD. So that's, that's, that's pretty important to know. And heritability of adult ADHD seems to be almost as high. That's 35%. So if one of your parents has ADHD, then you have a 50% or no, that's, that's not right. Anyway, 50% of children with ADHD uh, have at least one parent with ADD and 35% of adults with ADHD have a parent with ADHD. So what does this mean? Well, it means that it's highly heritable. A lot of conditions in the DSM have similar statistics, honestly, so it, it doesn't really differ in that way. Um, and what it says is that for people with ADHD, they have a genetic predisposition, and when you match that up with a particular kind of environment, then it's likely to uh, develop into ADHD. Okay. So what are uh, the hypotheses regarding the cause? You know, what, you know, what's the thinking in the literature regarding why people have this problem? What's, what's actually happening? What's, what's the functional problem here? Well, the, the, the main hypothesis is 
that people have a hypo arousal. You know, you can have hyper or you can have hypo. Hyper meaning a lot and hypo meaning under. So you can have an under arousal disorder of the brain resulting in decreased tonic activity of the locus corylulus uh, norepinephrine system. I don't know how to pronounce that. It's a part of the brain, but it's a it's the norepinephrine system. And that taxes executive control. So let me break this down. I've already basically said this in very layman's terms, but when tonic activity, essentially it's electrical activity and you, a particular part of the brain and it seems in the norepinephrine system in that particular part of the brain seems to be not firing or it seems to be uh, uh, low. There's not enough of it happening in the brain, shall we say. And this decreased activity taxes or strains the executive control mechanism of the brain in that in that in the front part just just behind your your forehead so when you have that decreased electrical activity your executive control mechanisms in the front part of your brain are working really hard and they're they're not uh, able to uh, do enough in order to, uh, you know, plan ahead or pay attention or uh, stop yourself from being hyperactive or being able to think things through before taking actions. And that's why stimulants seem to work with people like this, because it brings up that tonic activity, brings up that electrical activity so that their executive control mechanisms no longer have to work super hard in order to hold it together. So um, I hope that makes sense. And I'm not a biologist and I'm not a brain scientist, so um, I'm sure I'm not describing this exactly right, but, but, uh, but that's what I understand anyway. Uh, there's, there's other hypotheses as well that are perhaps less compelling, but uh, some people have suggested maybe there's not enough dopamine receptors some people have said that maybe the prefrontal cortex, maybe it's too small. There's not enough uh, gray or white matter or something. Uh, some people actually have hypothesized there's not enough communication between the hemispheres. So you know how you have two hemispheres of the brain and you have the, the, the freeway in the middle of the brain that communicates. <laughs> I'm not... What's it called? The corpus callosum? Or I can't remember. I'm not again. I'm not a brain scientist. People, you can't force me to do that. I I I, I have kind of like a, a kind of a um, dyslexia around the brain and all of its different. I've taken many classes on the brain and and on uh, psychopharmacology and stuff. And whenever I'm tested, I just do terrible on the names of things because there's so many names. I mean, I I really feel bad for physicians. Any of you. Uh, physicians out there, medical people, I I just feel so bad for you because everything depends on these stupid Latin names, and none of them make any sense. You know, you just you basically just have to learn a whole new language, and it's hard. It's hard stuff. You know. Anyway, so there's uh, you have two hemispheres of the brain, and some research has suggested that when you have a difficult time of the hemispheres communicating with each other that might result in ADHD. So again, as you can see, some studies seeing hmm, maybe it's related to dopamine. 
Huh, maybe it's related to brain size. Huh, maybe it's related to communication between hemispheres. Huh, maybe it's related to norepinephrine systems. So we have a lot of different evidence pointing at different types of, uh, you know, brain disorders, something wrong with this part of the brain or something wrong with this part of the brain. Maybe what we're seeing is multiple uh, syndromes and multiple pathologies that are all being lumped into ADHD. So it's just something to think about. I, there's some thinking along the same lines with autism, you know, because we don't understand it yet. Are we lumping a bunch of things into one category when really we're looking at a number of different disorders and we're, we're calling all of them autism or autism spectrum? Okay, so a little bit more on the brain. Uh, again, as I said before, it's compromised executive function. If there's one thing I really want you to learn, maybe, maybe there's a few things I really want you to take away from this, but I really want you to understand that ADHD, in fact, there are some people, including myself to some extent, but there are some people that actually refuse to use the label of ADHD. There are experts in my field that will only use the phrase uh, compromised executive function or uh, executive function disorder or something. They will not say ADHD because even among clinicians, the term ADHD is so strangely used and overused and misunderstood that it, to some extent, has lost its meaning. And so uh, many people have decided to use a whole other label of that focuses around ex executive function. So, and that's that part of the brain that pulls all of your other things together. It's the, it's the traffic cop that is directing traffic at the intersection. It's the conductor of the orchestra. It's the, the planner, the organizer. It's the, it's the part of the brain that allows you to make long-term decisions and allows you to regulate your emotions or even like notice that you need to regulate your emotions. It's a very important part of the brain. And if it is compromised, you're going to see a lot of symptoms. You're going to see a lot of problems. So, you know, in the executive function, again, attention, it's, it's the part that allows you to pay attention to something. It's also, it's also the part of the brain that allows you to inhibit something. So if you're in class and you're trying to, you know, there's, okay, so the test tomorrow is on and they start to talk and then there's a noise outside, your ability to inhibit that thing that's happening outside so you can pay attention or you're at a party as an adult and someone comes up to you and there's, there's a lot of people talking. There's a, you know, someone's laughing over here and someone drops their glass over here and there's music over here and there's something on the TV, but someone is standing right in front of you and talking to you. You have to uh, passively inhibit all the things around that person. So you can pay attention to that one person. Well, that's executive control to some extent. <clears throat> also working memory. Working, this is an important thing to know, is that your executive function has a lot of working memory function in that when, for instance, in the examples I gave before, uh, there's a hundred steps in cleaning the garage. Well, you've got to remember where 
everything is. You, you even have to remember what you're doing down there. Okay, I'm in the garage. I'm cleaning up. Uh, I have an hour, which means I have to, at a certain point, look at my watch and know that I have 10 minutes left and I've got to clean up and wrap things up so that I can start doing this again later. You know, that's all working memory. It's all that, that you know, for you computer nerds, it's your RAM. It's your random access memory. It's the stuff that is uh, the memory of things that are happening as uh, in the moment. It's not long-term memory. Also, executive function has to do with reasoning, your ability to think things through, your ability to understand the situation. It is involved in problem-solving, when you have a problem in your life or at work or as a, as a problem on a test or something, your executive function allows you to work out the problem and figure out the best course of action. And if you have a compromised executive function, you're going to have a hard time problem solving and you're going to have a hard time making decisions to, uh, for the best you know, outcome. And executive function also has to do with planning, planning ahead, making plans, whether it be just in that moment or long-term plans. They also help us control our behavior, like I was saying. They help us to inhibit our behavior of saying, oh, I feel like you know, getting up on this table and jumping off of it just for fun, but I'm at church right now and we're at a funeral and that is not appropriate to the situation. That is not good for, for me or anyone around me. So I am not going to get on top of this table and jump off of it for fun, even though I kind of want to. So with an executive, uh, function problem, you're going to see that adult or child get up on that table and jump off because it's, uh, it's something that popped into their head and they want to do it. Or, uh, you know, a lot of things pop into our heads when we're having conversations, right? You know, someone says something and it reminds you of a TV show you saw. Well, if you have executive function, normal executive function, you'll be able to say, well, it's probably not relevant to this person to mention that right now, so I'm not going to mention it. Well, if you have ADHD and you have a compromised executive function, when that thing pops into your head, you, you might say it because it popped into your head. And, and that's what has got your attention right now is that thing that popped into your head. And then you say it. And then the person looks at you like, what are you doing? Like that has nothing to do with what we're talking about. And then you feel like a fool. And then you think, why is everyone getting on my case all the time? Uh, it's because of this compromised executive function. Okay. So... But as I said, we don't know much about the brain, and uh, this is the the dominant thinking today. But um, you know, maybe in a hundred years, it, they'll see this completely differently. Okay, so now let's go into the last couple sections here, where we'll talk about the effects. Uh, you know, what does adult ADHD do to people when when an adult has ADHD? What are the, the sort of side effects in their life that will happen? And then also the treatment of ADHD. Well, and again, like I said, ADHD, even in adults, has been studied pretty uh, sufficiently, not sufficiently enough, but, but it's, it's been, you know, uh, researched quite a bit. Anyway, there is a common 
feature in adult ADHD for many people in that they have low socioeconomic status. They have lower levels of education. They tend to have lower levels of education. They tend to have more career problems. They tend to change jobs more frequently. They tend to have higher levels of unemployment. They tend to have difficulties managing their money and they tend to impulsively spend or impulsively gamble. So again, I don't need to explain why these things happen because I think I've sufficiently laid out, you know, the features of the condition and you can absolutely imagine that, you know, the inability, the, the executive function problem, you can actually, you can absolutely imagine that leading to problems with money problems with jobs, problems with spending, problems with gambling. And so they have found that, you know, they'll, they'll take uh, a sampling of people and they will test them for adult ADHD. And of the people who have adult ADHD, they have much higher rates of all these other problems. So it's not just that they have trouble paying attention. It's their, their lives are negatively impacted. And as patron Paul mentioned, you know, he'll get a lot of these people into his practice, you know, having suffered a lifetime of difficult jobs, difficult relationships. And then patron Paul will say, have you considered the possibility you might have ADHD and with, with treatment, you might be able to eliminate all these problems. And so that's part of what we're talking about here. Another major commonality among adult ADHD patients is problems with interpersonal relationships. They have difficulties in their social lives. They also tend to be sexually impulsive. They tend to have marital problems. They tend to divorce more. Adults with ADHD often report lower romantic relationship satisfaction and higher rates of separation, higher rates of breaking up and divorce than people without ADHD. And also spouses of adult ADHD people, they'll study them too. They'll, they'll find spouses of people with adult ADHD. And the spouses will, will, will report that their ADHD spouses will have more interpersonal problems. So it's not just that they themselves report that, but the people around them will say, yeah, that person has a lot of problems in their relationships, much more than, than other people do. Now, this is usually caused by inattention, not hyperactivity. And I just want to make sure that that's emphasized. Again, as I said earlier, when you have an adult with ADHD, it usually is the inattentive type. And when you are inattentive and when you have trouble planning things out, it will affect your relationships and it will affect the way people uh, relate to you. So I gave the example of conversations, you know, so you can imagine if you're talking with your spouse and they don't listen past two sentences, that's going to hurt your feelings, especially if you don't interpret it as ADHD and you interpret it as they just don't care. Also, they're going to interrupt more, as I said before, and that's going to hurt your feelings. But um, there's a whole other part of this that uh, I haven't talked about yet, which is in order you know, if you've been in a long-term relationship, you know that there are complications at times. There are arguments that you get into and you have your opinion and your spouse has a different 
opposing opinion. You know, you said that you were going to blank. No, I didn't. I never said that. Well, if you have, so that's just for non ADHD people, they'll have those, they'll have those arguments uh, all the time anyway. But if you have ADHD, that's going to make it even harder for you to figure out how to navigate that. Not only will you cause more of those kinds of arguments, but you'll also have a difficult time holding it together in order to argue with the person or to interpret what's happening or to integrate what's happening. To learn from our mistakes, we have to pay attention and we have our brain has to be able to really pay attention to something. You know, you are talking to your spouse and you're you're getting a little impatient and you roll your eyes. And then later on, your spouse tells you that they didn't like it that you rolled your eyes. Well, if you have ADHD, you might not be able to process that information in such a way that allows you to see the situation from your spouse's point of view and apologize. So your ADHD, not because you don't care, but because your, your executive function, your working memory and your attention issues are such that when your spouse comes to you and says, I don't like the way you're treating me right now, you might actually have a brain condition that makes it very difficult to understand what that person is saying. Not that you don't understand the English, but you, you have a hard time really getting what, what are you getting? At? I don't understand because you might've rolled your eyes earlier, but you didn't notice you rolled your eyes or it didn't register that you rolled your eyes. You weren't even paying attention to yourself, if that makes any sense. And so you can see how, uh, this can lead to more divorce and more difficulties. And th this is, uh, can cause a lot of other problems, right? Because when we have problems in our relationships, that leads to a lot of sadness and a lot of grief and a lot of depression and a lot of anxiety and a lot of, uh, isolation and attachment problems. And that can lead to a whole other set of problems, right? So you, you can see how ADHD, which might be considered to be a simple condition, can really, as an adult, maybe in particular, blossom into an all-encompassing whole person problem that, that impacts their work, their relationships. You know, as a kid, if you have ADHD, you will develop low self-esteem for sure. You know, I mean, it's not 100%, but but you're much more likely to emerge from childhood with a low self-esteem, particularly if you're not diagnosed with ADHD. You're just going to feel like you're stupid or uh, people don't like you. They're always yelling at you all the time. And so, you know, it, it, and then you try to have relationships and that doesn't work. And then you start turning to substances to cope with not only your ADHD symptoms, but also with all the sadness and low self-esteem and distance you're going through. And so, uh, and then you're, you know, the, the addiction destroys your life and, and all of it could have been avoided if you were properly diagnosed and treated for your issue earlier on in life and not treated as though you're stupid. Another area that uh, many adult ADHD people suffer from is parenting problems. They can have uh, parents who have ADHD can really have quite significant parenting problems. And this is, you know, quite a tragedy, right? Because you have children entering the world with adult 
um, with parents who have ADHD and are having trouble uh, paying attention to things and having trouble thinking things through and having trouble making plans and being organized. And this is, you know, absolutely going to affect your parenting, right? Uh, many adults with ADHD, when they become parents, they might be uninvolved as parents, or they might give uh, not enough praise to their children. They might be impatient and overreactive. They might discipline misbehavior inconsistently. You know, any any all parents, in my opinion, are inconsistent to some level. You know, it's something that I, I see a lot in my supervisees is they will say, oh, you know, we're working on how to increase consistency with the parents. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with working on your consistency as a parent, but it's it's such a universal problem in parenting that I, I often, well, here, so here's my beef. Here's my beef. Okay. So this is a little jag. Um, when families enter therapy, there are a myriad of possible problems that should be addressed by the clinician, by the family therapist. And one of them happens to be inconsistent parenting. But there are many other, you know, let me give like an example. So say, uh, you you know, a family comes in therapy and they're like, you know what, 10 year old Johnny is misbehaving. He's, he, you know, he's upset a lot. He's getting in trouble a lot. We have to put him in timeout a lot. He throws fits at the dinner table. You know, things are just really tough at home. Well, what I find is that a lot of therapists will, you know, they'll assess for a little bit and they will look for inconsistent parenting. And since most families have inconsistent parenting, they will find inconsistent parenting. And then they stop their assessment there and they say, okay, we need to work on making the parents more consistent in their parenting. And like I said, there's nothing wrong with you know improving your consistency. But what this effectively does is it denies the clinician the opportunity and really the responsibility to look at other possible causes for the child's behavior. It, it might not be inconsistent parenting. It might be that the child feels anxious or not well attached or the f- parents are fighting a lot or someone's an addict or you know, some other issue, you know, they, they are favoring another child or the child isn't given enough autonomy or the child isn't given enough, uh, dependency or, you know, there's just so, there's a, like just a million other possibilities as to why a 10 year old, 10 year old would be exhibiting that. And yet I see a lot of clinicians, all they do is assess for consistency in parenting. And as soon as they find inconsistency, they, that's what they hammer on for, for weeks on end. And they just give up assessing for other possibilities. And again, like I said, you, if you, you drag any family in off the street and you will find a lot of inconsistent parenting and because parenting is hard and there's so many different times when you just don't have the energy to be consistent as a parent, meaning and consistency of a parenting, parenting, if you don't know what it means, is essentially like following through on your threats and having clear discipline and clear consequences for child behavior uh, and and having both parents follow through on these things. Now, having said that, when you're inconsistent as a parent, 
particularly, you know, significantly, then you're going to have problems in your family for sure. But, but like I said, uh, it's something that I, I see a lot of people just, just going toward without really um, thinking about the bigger picture. Um, other research regarding parenting problems for adult ADHD people is they don't monitor their children's behavior very well, again, because they're distractible. They're less effective at problem solving. Parenting requires a lot of problem solving. Every day there's, there's a problem that needs to be solved. And if your executive function mechanism is not up to, you know, isn't up to average, then you're going to have some problems there as a parent. Uh, adult ADHD parents are less involved in their children's lives in general. They will uh, have less positive feedback to children. They're more negative. Again, they're less consistent with their disciplines, with their discipline. They, they often will speak over other people and they have difficulty communicating and they believe they have already told their children things that they have not told their children. So again, because of the working memory problem and executive function issues, you might have thought you told your kid to do X, Y, or Z, but you didn't actually tell your kid to do X, Y, or Z. And then when your kid doesn't do X, Y, or Z, you get angry at the kid and you discipline the kid and the kid's saying, you didn't tell me. And the parent is saying, yes, I did tell you. And now you're in big trouble. And so that's another adult ADHD uh, thing. So also, uh, ADHD parents have more difficulties with helping their children regulate their emotions. You know, as, as adult ADHD people themselves, they have, they have trouble regulating their own emotions. So that's going to complicate things, but they, they also are going to have trouble paying attention to their kids and problem solving well enough to help their kids with their own emotions. And so they're going to raise kids that are going to have more emotional problems. Um, other uh, factors. So again, I talked about low socioeconomic status. We talked about interpersonal problems and parenting problems. There's also psychological problems. As I said, uh, people with adult ADHD have extreme low self-esteem sometimes, oftentimes, and they're often isolated. People with ADHD as adults are often isolated from others because it's just easier that way, or they're having a lot of trouble sustaining relationships. As I said before, they'll also have problems with substances. They tend to not only have higher rates of addiction, but, but they're more severe. Their, their addictions are more severe. They can also become sex addicts, uh, the impulsivity of it all. Also, just some other research found that adult ADHD people tend to have earlier pregnancies or earlier parenthood. So they, they tend to have children earlier. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but it's just something to note. Also, people, adults with ADHD have a much higher rate of criminality. They are much more likely to commit crimes. For instance, a Utah study revealed that 24% of male inmates had ADHD. I just really want to focus on this for a second now, as, uh, I'm assuming that this study was responsible with their diagnosing and weren't overdiagnosing. Hard to tell, but I trust them on this. 24% of, uh, 
of the male inmates had ADHD. Now, remember that in the United States, among the general population, the rate is 4%. So a quarter of the inmates had ADHD. That is a lot of people with ADHD. And it raises some questions, right, of just like, wow, what are we doing to ourselves as a society by not treating ADHD, by not raising awareness for it? Because how much crime could we reduce if we had a better system and a better society regarding this? You know, it's, it's an interesting question to ask. Other studies have shown that up to 40% of people in prison have ADHD. So, you know, 24%, 40%. And the national recidivism rates for people released from prison are approximately 60%. So people with ADHD are likely, more likely to go to prison. And once they're released are more likely to commit crimes after being released. So again, it points toward uh, we need to put effort into treating these people because if you have, if you have ADHD and you have executive function problems and you're not being treated, then uh, you know who, how many people are being harmed by that? Not only victims of the criminals, but also the criminals themselves and their families being torn apart and all that stuff. Okay, so we talked about low socioeconomic status as a common result of adult ADHD, interpersonal problems, parenting problems. We have psychological problems. We have substance use. We have uh, criminality. And we have car accidents is another one. There's a number of studies, interestingly, finding that adults with ADHD are... Uh, let's see, they, they cause three to four times more accidents than people without ADHD. That is a, that's a stark figure right there. If you, uh, so, so if you, if you have adult ADHD, you're perhaps three to four times more likely to cause an accident. And that's, that's a scary thing right there. How many people are seriously injured forever or killed in car accidents. You know, car accidents are quite scary. When you when you break your back or something or your neck, these are scary things. And people with ADHD that are driving around not being treated and our society is not doing enough to help to help raise awareness for this sort of thing. There's all these people driving on the street that have executive control problems and uh, that leads to them not paying attention to something or being impulsive or whatever. And then they get in car accidents and then people are dying because of this and, and people are being seriously injured by this. It's, it's a, it's a terrible state of affairs really. So, you know, the thinking is, is that long boring tasks tend to increase ADHD symptoms. So when you put someone, an adult, you know, with ADHD in a situation where they have to do something very long and boring, they tend to become more fidgety, more irritable, less, less, they have more difficulty paying attention. And so, you know, driving can often be a very long, boring task, right? Now, specifically, adults with ADHD are more likely to exceed the speed limit. 
they have poor vehicle control. They have, they have a harder time controlling their vehicle, which is interesting. They are more likely to express their frustration and anger, like with road rage. So people with ADHD are more likely to have road rage. They're obviously more likely to be distracted while driving with texts or, you know, their phone or with something, you know, out of the corner of their eye or something, they're more likely to be distracted or with other people in the car, right? If you have other people in the car, they can be very distracting too. Adults with ADHD experience greater deterioration in driving performance after drinking. So if you take an adult ADHD person and you give them a couple of drinks, they're their driving is even more impaired than someone who had the same amount of alcohol who doesn't have ADHD as an adult. They drive more impulsively and they drive generally less safely. They have more traffic violations, particularly speeding, and they receive more driving, driving license suspensions. So their, their license is suspended more often than those people without adult ADHD. This is, uh, you know, this when I was doing research for this episode, this was shocking. I mean, it makes sense, but it's actually interesting that people have studied this so so much and found what seems to be obvious, but but really quite scary because you think, you know, how many adults with ADHD have have killed people on the road as a result of our society and our field's lack of attention to this? You know, it's one thing to have marriages go wrong. It's another thing to have parenting slip, but it's a whole other thing to have people die because of this. And they didn't have any stats on death on the road, but you know, it seems like a logical conclusion here, right? That's, that's a pretty scary thing. Um, examples that they give in the, in the research literature are they fail to check their mirrors before changing lanes. This b- bothers the crap out of me when I, when I'm on the freeway and someone just jams over, I'm just like, you know, do you realize we're driving at 65 miles an hour? Like, just look, you know, before you change lanes. Maybe some of those people have adult ADHD and their executive function just doesn't allow them to do that kind of stuff. It make, it's, it's harder for them to, to remember to do that kind of stuff. Uh, people with adult ADHD will fail to notice pedestrians and might run people over. They also tend to tailgate more. They drive too close to the car in front of them. They also disregard speed limits more often. Again, this is due to their weaker uh, ability to control their behavior. They don't have the ability to inhibit their behavior. They also are poorer at monitoring their performance. They also have a difficulty evaluating themselves. People with adult ADHD, because they're executive function problem, they have a difficult time evaluating what they're doing. And they also have more attention lapses, which, you know, can be a problem when you're on the road. Okay, so we've talked about car accidents, criminality, uh, substance use, psychological problems such as slow self-esteem, you know, parenting problems, interpersonal problems, low socioeconomic status. But the most important thing that I think we can say uh, that I can point out that adult ADHD will cause is a diminished quality of life. When you have untreated adult ADHD, 
you in all likelihood in some you know fashion will have a diminished quality of life your your life will be deteriorated to some extent if not to a great extent because you're not being treated for it you know they they uh will be impulsive they might be sensation seeking this is another area that is interesting is that there there's a uh, people with ADHD tend to seek sensations they want to uh, you know, they, when they get bored, they want to drink or when they get bored, they want to jump off things or when they get bored, they want to get in a fight with someone because it's, it's a sensation other than boredom. And so all these things can lead to a very destructive lifestyle. And, you know, they also grow up with a lot of emotional problems because they're treated badly. And, you know, so it's, it's just really a tragedy all around, really, when you look at it. Another thing that people will often overlook is that really a model of looking at adult ADHD is really a model of looking at childhood trauma. Because as children, uh, if, if you have adult ADHD, then in all likelihood you had childhood ADHD. And if you were a child with ADHD, you likely were not diagnosed and you likely experienced a lot of interpersonal problems and a lot of problems with authority because they would be yelling at you. Your parents might have treated you quite badly. And so this will cause a lot of traumatic moments as a child. And so to some extent, the treatment of, a, the treatment of adults with ADHD is, is just as much a treatment of childhood trauma as it is treating the executive function problem that they have presently. So it's just something to to note that if you have an adult with ADHD, you're probably going to do some good by spending a good amount of time processing feelings that have yet to be healed regarding experiences they had when they were children. Things like being bullied or uh, when they, they had a bunch of tantrums as children and their parents would lock them in a closet or their parents would yell at them or the teachers would call them names or they would be sent to a special school or, you know, whatever it is, there's, there's probably a history of difficulty there, uh, substance abuse problems. So treating adults with ADHD, uh, I think often will involve this sort of stuff. And so it's important to, to, to do that. Um, so just to focus a little bit on the addiction side of things is that adults with ADHD can become addicted to a lot of things. They can become addicted to food, alcohol, drugs, or work. Uh, cocaine and, and meth is a frequent thing because cocaine and, and meth or caffeine, nicotine, diet pills, speed, all those, you know, stimulants are actually, you know, the same essential mechanism as Ritalin. And so it will, it will actually help them. Uh, some people with adult ADHD will drink a ton of caffeine just to self-medicate themselves. Uh, but all, research has found that many, if not most adults with ADHD actually don't turn to speed, but to marijuana 
be, and it's hard to know why. So marijuana is a very different, uh, has a very different effect on the brain than all the stimulants do like nicotine, cocaine, meth, diet pills, speed, caffeine, Ritalin, all those, all those stimulants have a very uh, similar effect on the brain, but, but marijuana is very different from that. And so it's hard to know why marijuana is used so often by people with ADHD. The thought is, is that it might slow their brain down to a more functional level. It's hard to know. Again, we, our science regarding the brain is pretty bad right now, but a study by Hallowell and Ratey in 1995, they estimated that 30% uh, between 30% and 50% of Americans suffering from ADHD are using drugs and alcohol to self-medicate their ADHD symptoms. So, again, between a third and, a, and half of adults suffering from ADHD are using substances to self-medicate. That's a scary thing because, you know, these substances carry a cost with them, you know, not only uh, actual, you know, dollars cost, but, you know, there's there's side effects and it affects your job and your your interpersonal relationships, and so. Um, and one of the reasons why I'm pointing out this study also is because Hollowell opened a center in Seattle with one of my former students, Leslie Todaro, and it's called the Hollowell Todaro Center, and they they specialize in treating ADHD, and I believe they're the only, if not the preeminent ADHD center in Seattle. I'm really quite proud of my former student for starting this with Hollowell is a well-known expert in, in ADHD around the world. And, uh, Leslie Todaro, I think reached out to him and they started a center in Seattle. And I actually, one of my supervisees is actually working there right now. Another statistic here is that adults with ADHD are five times more likely to move from substance dependence to abuse. So, uh, you know, well, I won't go into detail on that, but just know that they, they tend to have a lot more problems with substances. They also take four years longer on average to get sober. That's a, that's a long time, right? So when, people start recovery and they they start trying to get sober adults with ADHD take 4 years longer to get sober so it's very hard for people with ADHD to to get sober and to stay sober um there are different drugs that are used by different types of ADHD in general. So these are all in general. So I don't think that this is always the case. But in general, adults with inattentive ADHD will tend to use stimulants like coke and meth. Adults with over-focused ADHD tend to use alcohol, which makes sense, right? Because it slows down their focus. Adults with ADHD that affects the limbic system and the, ba and the basal ganglia tend to use both pot and stimulants. And adults with ADHD that involves the temporal lobe tend to abuse alcohol and marijuana. So again, as I said earlier, there's a lot of thinking that what we call ADHD is actually a disorder. It's, a, it's, a, it's several different disorders. So for, for some, it seems to involve the temporal lobe. For some, it seems to involve the limbic system, the basal ganglia. 
Uh, for others, they're over-focused, and for others, they're inattentive. And so what people will gravitate towards, they will basically, people with adult ADHD will experiment with a lot of different drugs, trying uh, maybe even unconsciously to find an answer to their problems. And they will find that one or two of the substances that they experiment with will tend to uh, enhance their life in a way that they are looking for. And depending on the type of ADHD they have, uh, that will determine the, the substance that, that tends to work for them. And some people will like stimulants, and some people will like alcohol, and some people will like pot and stimulants together, and some people will like alcohol and marijuana together. And so it's another tragedy here because if we had better treatment, better, uh, better awareness, we could help them with this more systematically rather than making them resort to illegal substances and addiction in order to, to get help. It's really just a sad state of affairs. All right, so let's end our very long discussion that I'm realizing now is going on way longer than I thought. If you're still listening to this, um, I commend you. You must be very interested in this topic, or you just you're one of those people that likes to hear my voice. Occasionally, I get emails from people saying like, "Oh, I like your voice," and I I always wonder, is this like one of those what do they call ASMR or what's that thing called where people listen to podcasts because they they just like the sound of of particular voices and whispering what what do they call that anyway so yeah you're one of those two people <laughs> um and uh you're also a patron you know so again i just want to thank you for becoming a patron you are very much appreciated like i said before there's only 300 ish of you and so it's um yeah, it's really quite special. I feel a real connection with a lot of you. Uh, this episode is all dedicated to patron Paul, the counselor in the UK. And I don't know, just I, I haven't met patron Paul, but I feel like given the nature of his questions, I feel like I know him kind of. And so, I don't know, it's just, it's a special feeling to have a community like us together talking about all these interesting things. And I don't know. It's just, it's a good thing. I feel quite warm about it. And, uh, you know, if you haven't ever, please email me and let me know how you're doing. Okay, treatment. Treatment. There are many treatments. And treatments uh, are not so great, again, because we only have a certain amount of tools available to us. But they often will work. And they have to be administered by experts. And they have to be tailored to each individual. You can't, you know, the common thing that people do is, oh, ADHD, okay, Ritalin, or whatever, you know, Concerta, or Vyvanse, or Adderall, or whatever, and moving on in life. And we know, and I know anecdotally, that that is not sufficient. For some people, it is, honestly. For some people, particularly adults, they'll be like, oh my God, I can now organize my life now that I'm taking Adderall. Suddenly, I can keep my shit together and I'm no longer, you know, a bad parent anymore and all this kind of stuff. And so for some people it is, but, but really it, it can't, it, it's, it's not, it's not responsible treatment just to, just to give medication and not think about these other areas. But there are four main treatments uh, regardless of age. So this is for children and adults. The first one is education. 
this is an important treatment for uh, ADHD families with children and also for adults is to educate about the symptoms and talk about tips on how to manage one's symptoms, how to understand the disorder. This is a very important element in treatment and can take a long time, honestly. Uh, another important area of treatment is psychopharmacology, right? So we're looking at uh, medications. So, uh, or pharmacotherapy. There's a lot of different words for it. Uh, psychotropics, medications, all these different words. Same thing. Uh, all Mainly what we're looking at are stimulants here. That's mainly what we're looking at. Because, again, we just don't have a lot of options. And stimulants tend to work for people. The third uh, main treatment is psychotherapy. Cognitive behavioral therapy. Psychodynamic therapy. Rogerian therapy. Now, there's a lot, as a psychotherapist myself, I can tell you that there's a lot of functions to psychotherapy of adult ADHD people. So you're looking at how to help people make decisions. You're looking at how to regulate emotions. You're looking at how they can manage their impulses. You're looking at how to problem solve. You're working through specific issues with them. You're also working on, because they're adults and have suffered a lifetime of injust injustices because of their condition, you're also treating a lot of traumas and a lot of relationship problems and a lot of attachment problems. That's where the psychodynamic therapy comes in or the Rogerian comes in, is they've got a lot of, they've got a lot of things to get off their chest. They, they've had a lifetime of feeling like they're stupid or not good enough. And until that is addressed and healed, that will cause lots of problems, let alone just their own suffering, but also interpersonal problems. And, and they might have attachment problems that you're going to have to treat as well. So that's, that's where psychotherapy comes in and assessment and tailoring the treatment really becomes important. Also, the fourth major treatment that is often neglected is the systemic treatment. So we're looking at family therapy or parent, parent coaching, this kind of stuff. As a family therapist, as a systemic relational therapist myself, I can say that uh, it's right up my alley and I train people to do this and it's uh, among my colleagues an obvious thing to do. But anecdotally and to some extent, uh, statistically, it is found that in our field, it's often ignored. So when you have someone with ADHD, they will look at the person as an individual and treat that individual rather than bringing in the family, bringing in the parents, bringing in the spouses, and seeing how the system needs to be treated. For instance, if an adult comes in with ADHD, I will absolutely talk with the spouse because the spouse knows the disorder perhaps better than the patient does. The spouse is like, oh yeah, I know when he or she is inattentive. I know, man, I see this stuff all the time. You know, it makes sense, right? Because if you have ADHD yourself, in order to observe your ADHD, your executive function has to be working pretty well. And that doesn't always happen. So you might not be the best person to observe and comment on your state and your behavior. It's the same with bipolar or something. You know, when I treat people with bipolar, I will always bring in the spouse because the spouse is the first person to 
notice when the person with bipolar is heading into a manic phase or a depressive phase because the spouse will will say, oh, I've been here before. I, I know what this is. I know where we're going, whereas the patient might not necessarily know themselves. So it's the same with ADHD. You want to bring in the system and not only just for assessment and understanding and you know getting a better clinical picture, but also the spouse is a part of the situation. The spouse or the families or the parents, they're suffering as a result of the, you know, the ADHD doesn't just affect the individual, the ADHD affects everyone. Also, the spouse might have problems of their own that might exacerbate the ADHD symptoms. And you need to perhaps treat that spouse for that issue. You know, they might be overly angry, or they might be overly judgmental or critical. And so those kinds of things need to be addressed as well. Okay, so again, education, medication, psychotherapy, which is quite a broad term for a lot of different things, and systemic treatments. And again, these are the treatments recommended regardless of age, whether they're children or adults. Okay, so let's talk about medication for a second. Psychostimulants, or just simply stimulants, they often work to calm the brain ironically. Even though you're stimulating the brain, you're actually, in a way, calming the ADHD brain down. You're enabling the adult with ADHD to focus and get things done. You're enabling them to tolerate other people. You're enabling them to work well with others and to plan things out and to have their working memory work better for them. And so with stimulants, and I've seen this in many patients, when they take a stimulant, they will say, I, I function, you know, without my stimulant, they will say, I can't function at work or without my stimulant, I cannot function as a parent. They will say that they will just say, I am, I am a terrible parent without my stimulant or I cannot seem to handle work when I uh, am without my stimulant. I, I know uh, therapists who have ADHD as, as adults, and when they work with their clients, they need their stimulant. Otherwise, they can't pay attention. I mean, imagine if you're a therapist with ADHD and you can't, you can't pay attention to people. Being a therapist would be tough if you had ADHD, right? Well, a stimulant can, can help with that. So uh, stimulants are, are very important for people with ADHD. Now, in the past, we used to think, and I remember hearing this 20 years ago, that if you suspected ADHD, you know, you're in the assessment phase, you're like, well, maybe this person has ADHD, then the, the clinician or the psychiatrist would give the person a stimulant and, and then test to, and then see how they do on that stimulant. And if their symptoms improve, then at that point the diagnostician would say, ah, well, the person obviously has ADHD because why would they respond so well to stimulants if they didn't have, if they didn't have the condition of ADHD? So again, 20 years ago, that was the thinking. If, if you're on the fence, just give them a stimulant. And if it works, then yes, you, you can, you, you know, the person has ADHD, but we now know that most people respond well to stimulants. So you give anyone a stimulant, they're going to perform better at work. They're going to have an easier time paying attention to things. And so, uh, you know, this is why people drink caffeine so much is, you know, I live in Seattle. Caffeine is like water to us here and it, it helps you perform better. I, I remember 
learning this for the very first time when I was in college. Uh, I was 21 years old, I think. And I had this job where I called people randomly on the phone. This is back before computers and you actually just hand dialed with your hand. We had these cards with uh, phone numbers on them. And sometimes they'd be just random phone numbers, you know, like call 392-0001. And if that doesn't work, then call 392-0002. And we just, and it was, it wasn't selling things. It was surveying people, you know, the, so the lottery, the Washington state lottery was one of our major clients. And we would often uh, survey random people about their attitudes about the lotto is what they called it in Washington. And so I was, so it felt, you know, if I was selling things to people over the phone, that would have, that doesn't really fit with my personality, but uh, doing surveys, you know, I was fine. And if people refuse, like no big deal, I'll just call the next person. Anyway, when I uh, worked there, I would get bonuses if I got um, whoever had the most or some, some kind of thing. If you had a lot of surveys per hour, you got a bonus. And, you know, I'm 21 and dirt poor and, you know, five, an extra five bucks an hour or something would be, was a huge deal to me back then. And so when I, uh, did not drink caffeine, I noticed I never got a bonus, but when I drank caffeine, my chances of getting the bonus went way up. I noticed I talked faster I was better. I was more convincing. You know, I was like, hey, you know, just calling you for a survey. It's, it'll just take a few minutes. I'm not selling anything. I promise. You know, what do you think about that? You know, I was much more nimble and much better socially. Whereas when I was normal and without caffeine, I was slower and I, it was hard, harder for me to like really focus on the task and I'd get bored more easily. And so, so again, in the past, they would just throw stimulants at someone, and if they improved, then they say, "Oh, they have ADHD," and then they would put the stamp of ADHD on their file. Whereas today, we all know that stimulants work for a lot of people, and just because someone responds well to stimulants doesn't mean they have ADHD. Okay, so it is also important to know that stimulants work better with hyperactive types than inattentive types. So uh, stimulants work for inattentive types for sure, but research shows that they have a higher, uh, you know, effect, uh, uh, more, they have a bit more positive effect for hyperactive ADHD people than inattentive uh, ADHD people. So I just want to, you know, say something uh, in that for some stimulants doesn't work at all. So they have an executive function problem. They take a stimulant. It doesn't help them at all for whatever reason. Um, so the, the common, uh, stimulants that are, that are prescribed are the following. You have Concerta, you have Ritalin, which I'm sure you've heard of. You have Metadate, which I've never heard of before, but I read about, I don't, I'm not even sure if I'm pronouncing that right. Metadate or Metadate. I don't know. You have Focalin, which I've never heard of before. And then you have Vyvanse and Adderall, which I have heard. The, the, the ones I've heard are Concerta, Ritalin, Vyvanse, and Adderall. These are all stimulants, uh, just, you know, slightly different stimulants. Uh, and, you know, they're all, they're all in the same class of, of medication. And there's one non-stimulant that is used, and that's Stratera. 
this is uh, the only medication that is given commonly for ADHD people that is not a stimulant. Stratera is a monoamine reuptake inhibitor that affects the norepinephrine system. And I only know about 3% of what that means, but just know that it's, it's kind of similar to things like Prozac. It's, it's in that zone of medications, which is very different from the zone of uh, medications in stimulant. I understand that uh, Prozac is a SSRI, which is very different from uh, Stratera, but for the lay person, just understand that Stratera is is quite different than the medications like Ritalin and Vyvanse and Adderall and that kind of stuff. Now, all these medications can come in pills, which many of you are probably aware of, but they can also come as patches or chewable tablets. You know, for children, they might have trouble swallowing pills, so you might want to prescribe a chewable tablet. Or for someone that needs it to be um, you know, administered ongoing, a, a patch will be sometimes good for that. Now, with these medications, there are side effects. And although stimulants have very few side effects, you know, all of us have taken caffeine, or most of us have anyway. And, you know, we all know the side effects, right? You get a little jumpy, you might have trouble falling asleep. It's the same for Ritalin and Vyvanse, Adderall, Concerta. They, uh, for, for children, they will sometimes find that the, their, their appetite is suppressed to such an extent that they actually will not eat enough to grow adequately. So a lot of kids will, uh, that are you know, chronically on, on stimulants for ADHD, they will be underdeveloped physically. Now, it's not a terrible thing, but it's not a good thing, you know. And so uh, that's, that's one of the things that, that we watch out for. But, but most often I find that people have trouble sleeping um, is the most uh, common side effect that I've seen anecdotally. When you, you know, you're taking a pretty powerful stimulant, especially if it's a slow release, because, you know, if, if you need a stimulant from, for your entire day at work, you know, say you, you want to be a good worker all day. So you work from eight to five, you take your pill in the morning and it's a slow release. So you have a stimulant, you know, going pretty active in your brain and, and starts to taper off around six, seven o'clock. Well, by the time you go to bed, you might still have some of this in your system and your brain does not want to fall asleep when it's jacked up. And so you'll find that um, some ADHD adults will have trouble sleeping on their medication. The ironic thing is, is that when you are sleep deprived, you'll have more ADHD symptoms, which means you need to take more medication, which might result in less sleep, which might result in more ADHD symptoms, which is more, you know, and so sleep is an important thing for all of us to focus on really, but for ADHD people, it's um, important too. Also, like I said, uh, poor appetite, it'll lead people to not want to eat. Uh, diet medication is is a stimulant. That's you know whenever they whenever you hear about oh take that diet pill, it, it usually just means they're taking a stimulant. Because when you're when you're jacked up, you, you don't think about eating or you, you you don't crave to eat for whatever reason. 
Also, uh, stimulants can result in ticks. So you might have a kid or, or an adult, I suppose, although I've seen it more in kids, who doesn't have a tick and you give them the stimulant and they start developing a tick. And although ticks aren't life-threatening usually, they are socially very pro- problematic. You know, if you're in the fifth grade and you start developing a weird-looking tick to the other kids, then, you know, it's going to be hard for them at school. And so that's that's a, another consideration. And this is often why people don't take them because, you know, there's there's, you know, significant enough side effects. But on the scale of all the different medications out there, the side effect profile for stimulants is pretty is pretty small. So, you know. Um, now, Stratera, since it is a selective inhibitor of the presynaptic norepinephrine transporter, um, <laughs> uh, I do know what that means, but um, but again, it's it's different than a stimulant. And it's it's made Stratera, like I said, it's the only non-stimulant med- medication for for ADHD, it affects norepinephrine and dopamine levels, especially in the prefrontal cortex, because, you know, that's often what's involved in the uh, ADHD uh, issues. People who take Stratera, so since this is very different from a stimulant, involves a very different mechanism in the brain, causes more side effects. For children and adolescents, there might be an increase in suicidal ideation, which is really quite scary. It can also lead to severe injury of the liver. So Stratera can, can have a lot of problems. Uh, it, it, it can have changes on your mood. And, and so um, when, when you're looking at, often in my anecdotal experience, when a psychiatrist is looking at Stratera, it's because other medications, the stimulants, weren't working or there was some kind of complication, like they develop a, a tick or something. And so, and so Stratera will, will be used after stimulant, um, stimulants have been tried and it was found that they were not ideal medications. There are other drugs, too, uh, besides the stimulants and Stratera. There's clonidine and guanfacine. I don't know how to pronounce that, guanfacine. Uh, but I do know clonidine. So uh, there are other drugs that are used in very rare cases. Uh, my suspicion is that I've never known any ADHD patients to use these, but my suspicion is that they're used maybe in strange ADHD presentations or, again, when the stimulants didn't work and the stratera didn't work or the side effects are too great, and they're like, well, let's try clonidine. Let's see if that works. A lot of psychiatry, in case you didn't, you don't know, is a lot of trial and error. Now, I know a lot of psychiatrists will say, no, we use a system of blah, blah, blah. But I know enough psychiatrists and physicians that will level with me and they'll say, yep, it's pretty much a lot of trial and error because you just don't know. You, you know, you, you diagnose someone as best you can. And then you look at statistically what tends to work with this person, with people with that you know, symptom profile. And then, but, but all prescribers know that medications don't always work and there are side effects. Some people have side effects. Some people don't have side effects. And so you throw a pill at the person and you monitor it and you do the best you can and you just see what happens. 
And so sometimes, you know, down the line, you're like, well, let's see if clonidine works, you know, and then it works. And you're like, okay, let's stick with clonidine. And with many people, it didn't work. And so, you go, oh, okay, let's take you off clonidine. Let's put you on something else. Anyway. Now, uh, so we've talked about medication. Let's talk about alternative medicine. There are many, many alternative medicine regimens, shall we say, for adult ADHD. If you look on the internet, there's plenty. However, I haven't looked into all of them, but in general, there does not seem to be any evidence that any of the alternative medications are effective. This is not to say that they can't have a placebo effect or they can't be effective for an individual. For instance, let's say, you know, there's some kind of extract or something that tends to work with you. You say you have adult ADHD and you take a particular, you know, alternative medicine thing and it works for you. Well, great. Actually, I'm not sure if I answered all of patron Paul's questions here. Let's see. He would be grateful if I would cover mechanisms employed to cope with or conceal inattentive behavior. Yeah. Well, um, my suspicion is, is that patron Paul is running into a lot of patients who might not actually want to be in therapy, but even if they do, they, from his question, I'm guessing they're, they're in denial of their problems and they are also hiding a lot of their issues. You know, he's, he's saying they conceal inattentive behavior. They have covert narcissism. They're isolated they're They have addictions and they're in denial of the effect ADHD has on their relationships. And yeah, um, the thing I'll say about that is when you are treated badly throughout your life, you have low self-esteem. And one of the ways people cope with low self-esteem is to act like they are competent when they are not competent. So you will, you know, in order to admit there's something wrong with you, you have to have a healthy self-esteem in order to say, you know what? I don't know anything about that. Or, you know what? I just made a big mistake. You have to have, you have to have a sufficient self-esteem to withstand that threat to your self-esteem, shall we say. And if you've had a lifetime of having your self-esteem beaten down, then it's going to be hard for you to admit that you're wrong or that you have a problem or that you are doing things that are bothersome to other people. It's going to be hard. And so when uh, treating adults with ADHD, a, a, a lot of care needs to be given to that person's ego and their self-esteem. You might have to go through months of developing a secure relationship with that person to get to a point where they can even begin to admit some of these really painful things about themselves. You know, us clinicians were like, come on, admit it. You have ADHD. You have issues. You have, you have, you're sort of narcissistic. Uh, you, you, you've been, you're responsible in your actions. You know, I hear a lot of therapists saying stuff like that. It's like, oh, this person doesn't take responsibility for themselves and they're in complete denial. And okay, Sure. And why is that? Why would someone do that to themselves? Why would they shoot themselves in the foot in that way? It's not because they're evil or immature or stupid or 
you know, somehow not a good person or something. It's probably because they've had a lifetime of feeling shitty about themselves. And we have the opportunity to build a relationship with them, to give them unconditional positive regard, to help them feel some semblance of self-esteem, at least when they're talking to us, so that they can begin to look at themselves critically and say, you know what, I've made a mistake here. Or you know what, I have a theme in my life of blank. And so uh, that's what I'll say about that. The other thing more specifically to ADHD that I'll say that I've seen anecdotally is people will know about themselves by the time they're an adult that they have trouble paying attention, right? They'll be like, you know what? I seem to get in trouble a lot in conversations with my spouse or my friends for not paying attention. And so what I will do is I will uh, have elaborate ways of making people think that I'm paying attention when I'm really not. I'm reminded of something that my grandfather said on my, on my European American side, my grandfather, uh, he was talking once to all of us grandkids giving us his wisdom. (laughs) And he said, um, he said, you know what? And he had us all cracking up, but he said, you know what we, you know what I do when someone's just talking and talking and talking and, and I just, I'm just not interested in what they're saying is, I, I furrow my brow and I look him in the eye and I just say the following phrases. You don't say, well, ain't that something, you know, and he just had all these phrases and we, it had to be there. It was funny. And we were laughing hard. And, um, so things like that, right? So people with ADHD, adult ADHD, anecdotally that I know will have these kinds of tricks to trick people into thinking they're paying attention when they're really not. Now, on one level, you would say, well, man, that's, that's them being a dick. On another level, that's them being very caring for other people because they know that they have a deficit in paying attention and they, and they really don't want to hurt other people's feelings. And so they have ways of tricking other people into believing they're paying attention because they don't want other people to feel, to, to be hurt by them. So, you know, there's similar things when someone has uh, impaired hearing is, you know, you'll hear similar kinds of things. They'll say, oh, you know, yeah, I, I act like I'm, I can hear all the time because I don't want to bother people with uh, having them to, to speak up. And it just, and it, if you're in a conversation with 10 people, I don't want everyone to have to stop and yell at me in order for me to pay to, you know, keep up. And so a lot of times I just act like I know what's happening and laugh when everyone else is laughing because I just don't want to hurt other people's feelings. Well, it's the same with ADHD. People will know that they're distractible and they'll try to save other people's feelings. Other, you know, mechanisms that I've seen are they will just not get into conversations with people, right? They, they have ways of tricking people into not going down long, boring roads. So, you know, a couple sentences go by and they might say like, oh my God, that's so interesting. That reminds me of this thing. Hey, let's go over here and let's do this. You know, and they just avoid having sit downs where they have to stare at someone, talk for a long time. And so, you know, those are things that I see, but I didn't see anything in the research literature regarding common ways, but, but, you know, I've certainly seen that. 
Oh, I'm suddenly realizing I never talked about the psychotherapy or the educational ways in which adult ADHD is treated. So uh, there are there's so much to talk about in this area, but in a nutshell, the the general things that I've seen work and that other people will use are helping adults with ADHD to understand their symptoms and to understand how to manage them. This is something you do with kids too and it's it's it can be very helpful. You know, rather than just giving medication, you can really help people understand their their symptoms and help them to manage their symptoms. You know, just because they have a deficit does not mean that it's impossible for them to function well. For instance, say in the, you know, at work, they are given a task like, you know, the boss says, I want you to write a report on blank. Well, the, the adult ADHD patient might, without any kind of treatment or any kind of help, might feel very scared about that task and might become very anxious and, and might uh, give up or try to fake it or, or whatever. Just it doesn't go well. Well, if they're in therapy with someone that knows what they're doing, so the person comes to therapy and they say, oh, my boss just assigned me this, this thing. Okay. So now the therapist and, and the patient sit down and they say, okay, well, how are you going to do this? What's the process? Let's really think it through. And the patient says, okay, well, 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 what do you mean? Like, you know, and the therapist says, well, how many steps are involved in this task? You know, tell me what, what's the first step? Okay, here's the first step. Okay, what's the second step? That's okay. What's the third? Let's, let's write this down. Let's write this down in a piece of paper or on a online document of some kind. Let's really walk ourselves through this. So in other words, for other people, they might be able to do this in their head on the fly without any kind of tools to remind them where they are in the process. Whereas people with ADHD, if they're on board, which might, again, require you to really bolster their self-esteem and help them accept their condition and know that there's nothing wrong with them. It's just, you know, it's just a condition that requires a little bit of thinking about. And so once they are on board with taking action to, to manage their ADHD symptoms, you know, so you start writing out the steps and then they go to that list to make sure that they stay on task or they might go to their boss and say, so just so you know, I have adult ADHD, and although I'm taking medication, it doesn't completely alleviate all of my uh, symptoms, and I want to be a good employee. And so uh, is it okay if I come back to you every day and check in and tell you where I'm at in the process, and then you can uh, give me a little bit of feedback? It'll, it'll only take a couple of minutes. Can we schedule that? so that I remember to do it every time. Because if I don't schedule it and I just sort of say, I might stop by, I might forget. And so let's schedule it. Okay, uh, so you come in at noon every day, you give the boss an update, and the boss says, oh, well, you actually forgot this other thing, so go back and do that thing. Oh, okay, okay, I'll go back and do it. I'll put that on my list. I'll go back and do it. It sounds laborious, but for some people... That's what it takes, and that's that's what it takes to work uh, around those things. With things at home, you might have to keep lists, and you might have to develop systems of dealing with that. 
like knowing that uh, your ability to pay attention to your spouse is particularly bad at a certain point of the day. And you tell your spouse, by the way, uh, at night when I'm tired, that it's it's impossible for me to pay attention much more than just a sentence. So if you give me a directive like make sure tomorrow on your way to work you pick up blank, I'm telling you now, it's not going to work for me. You're going to have to tell me that in the morning or you're going to have to write that down or you know, text me as I'm leaving for work or, or something, because, you know, I, I'm very sorry about this. And I know this burdens you a, with a lot, but I'm just telling you that it's going to be hard for me to remember that due to my issue here. And so, again, you're working with the system and you're you're helping them to account for and manage their systems. There's also this, you know, the thing of neuroplasticity and having the brain learn new skills. You know, you can Really, practice makes perfect in some situations with the brain. If you practice a lot of executive function functionality, you might actually improve your executive function. If you spend a lot of time practicing how to stay on task, practicing how to pay attention to things, you know, there are skills. Again, as I said earlier, there, we all utilize these skills. My attention is starting to wane as this lecturer is lecturing on and on about adult ADHD on this podcast, and I find myself losing uh, focus. Well, we all have ways of saying, stay on focus, you know, don't be distracted. And people with adult ADHD are the same. They have a lot harder time with it, but they can exert control uh, as much as they can, and it can help things. And so there's, there's things like that that they can do in practice. And there's, there's a whole slew of these tips and things that therapists who specialize in adult ADHD will walk people through. There might be worksheets or there might be activities that they can do. But and there's lots of little tips on how to manage adult ADHD. And so the, those are all additional ways in which uh, people will uh, treat their ADHD. And, it, and it's one... That is often neglected. You know, a, a common thing is, you know, throw a medication and, and that's it. And although that can really help, it's it's only half, in my view, of the picture. You really have to start looking at ways of managing the symptoms because um, there sometimes medication doesn't work or it only works to a certain extent. And um, learning, you know, how to manage the symptoms can, can do a lot for people. Uh, but again, it's not my special it's not my area of expertise. And I'm, uh, if you talk to someone who actually did this day in and day out, they would have a lot more to say about that. And, and I, I really encourage you, if you're looking for more information, there are two things that I recommend doing. One is, is uh, seek out those experts that uh, treat ADHD because experts that treat ADHD, they do it all day long and they, they, know, they know a lot more nuance uh, about it than, than I do. The other thing I encourage you to do is go on YouTube and just listen to people with ADHD describe their ADHD, you'll realize how different it is among individuals. And you'll get a, a better picture of the real life experience of someone who has adult ADHD. That's, that's a good way to learn about it. Okay. Well, that does it for the episode. Thanks for joining me out there. Please take care of yourself and take care of other people because y'all deserve it. You hear?